What's up my fellow ambitious poker players and welcome to the Mechanics of Poker podcast in which me, Renee, aka The Wacko and Adam Carmichael deconstruct high stakes poker players, figuring out what it is about them, how they think, what they do that makes them so successful with an extra focus on the obstacles they faced and the skills they had to develop to surpass them. This podcast is brought to you by Poker Ambition. If you are ambitious about making more progress in your poker career, go over to their site, pokerambition.com and find out which service is best for you. But without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Welcome back to another episode here on the Mechanics of Poker podcast. In today's podcast, we are making the jump to the MTT world and who better to do this with than Patrick Leonard, a.k.a. Pats. He has been uh, playing poker for over 12 years. And I have to say, I've rarely seen someone who gets such a smile on his face from poker strategy as Patrick, especially when it comes down to ICM. A very passionate guy about the game. More recently, he has also drawn a lot of attention with his social media use, mainly posting his Sunday stories on Instagram, where he... Wait for a nice beat to drop before making calls in general. Uh, this is a way of expressing himself, really showing his passion about the game. A lot of fun. When, when I think about Patrick, I think, think about a fun guy playing poker. What's your thoughts on that, Adam? Yeah, I think Pat has so much passion for the game. He's been around for a long time. He's been at the top of the MTT world for pretty much the last 8 ten year, to 10 years. So yeah, I'm really fascinated how he's kept that motivation, passion, and drive for the game. And yeah, I'm looking forward to... Uh, diving into how he made his journey to the top, all the lessons he's learned, and yeah, hopefully we can distill some good lessons for the audience. What are you most excited about for today's guest? Someone with his level of experience, and also, you know, poker changes a lot over the years, and what you often see is that people who started back when he started, they kind of stopped at some point, right? They, you often say that poker in the mm -hmm. past was easier, and when stuff got a bit harder, people often kind of built, but he didn't, so... Clearly a very, I think his passion really helped him a lot uh, in that as well. He also did a lot of coaching. So yeah, a lot of experience. So without further ado, let's have Pats on. Welcome, Patrick, to the podcast. Good to be here. Good to be here. I've, I've uh, seen bits and bobs of all, all the podcasts you've done so far. Um, I only watch podcasts which have timestamps. That's kind of my rule. So I really love that you guys have timestamps because it means I can just watch, you know, 15 minutes here, 10 minutes here, 20 minutes here on like little segments, which I think is a really good way to do it. So uh, thanks for doing the timestamps for the other ones. No worries. No worries. I mean, I'm similar as you. So it was also kind of out of my own need. And I'm sure a lot of poker players, you know, our attention spans nowadays are at the highest to just sit down and listen to two and a half hours of podcasts. So people kind of want to, browse true, true stuff. So I think that's a good mm -hmm. addition uh, to the pod. I wanted to start off with uh, an observation that I made. I saw you were a big Newcastle United fan. Happy with yeah, this winter's yeah. uh, transfer window and the changes in general that are going on at the club? Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. It's, uh, I, was, I was prepared to be the richest club in the world in the second division of, uh, in England, but fortunately it looks like things might be okay after all. So... Uh, so yeah, looking forward to uh, to probably going to some European games in the not so distant future. So hopefully, maybe I don't jinx it, but that would be nice. Yeah, they came out firing us straight away. Uh, 
I saw Trippier was the hero in the last match, if I'm not mistaken. Do you think, uh, how many years do you think it will take for Newcastle to compete for the title? Um, I would imagine something like six, seven-ish. That's like 12 transfer windows. So it's like a billion pounds if you do 100 million per transfer window. So I think Man Manchester City squad is worth around about a billion pounds. So to assemble a squad to compete, I imagine it will take around about six or seven years. I mean, money is not everything. I'm personally a, a United fan and they blasted. I don't know how much money and look and look what kind of team they put together. So it also kind of depends which players you're going to buy from uh, from experience. Yeah. From a this is from this comes from a For frustrated sure. fan. Adam, do you mm -hmm. actually actually I don't know. Do you actually like football, Adam? I do. I'm a Newcastle fan myself. It's very difficult to watch any of the games in Bali because they run at like three in the morning. But yeah, I follow all the scores. I'm a bit of a BBC Sport advocate. I always know all the ratings and how the team's doing. And yeah, we finally got something to shout about at the moment, which is great. So Pads, uh, you've got a sporting background and you used to love playing football yourself. So uh, talk us through that. When, you're, when you start playing football, what age were you competitive as a footballer? Um, I guess I started playing when I was around about five, six, just... You know, in like, you used to go to like a camp, I guess, in summer. And uh, I think in America, you have like camps in summer where you go away to, to like, almost like a scout camp, you know, like you go away like in a, in a hut or something with loads of other kids. But in England, it's very different. You, I think the only camps they have in England are like sport camps, really. Like you just have like a football camp in Newcastle, at least everyone I knew in summer, you just went and played football for like six weeks. In England, you have this thing called the six weeks holiday. It's like um, everyone looks forward to it all year. It's like, oh, how long till the six weeks holiday? And uh, at least in where I'm from in Newcastle, everyone just went and played football for six weeks. So I think probably the first time I went to school, I guess you're like six, so like year one, a reception, you had your first six weeks holiday. Then I just played football for six weeks then. And then since then I played, I played basically six days a week from five years old till I was like, 18, I guess. Um, I started to do running when I, I guess I was like 12 or 13. So I would run, um, I would run basically four times a week and I'd play football six times a week. I was doing like double sessions. Uh, this is when I was like 12, 13. So um, I was very obsessive. Um, I wasn't like forced to do it from my parents, but I was extremely encouraged. Like they would rather I was doing that than, you know, like being on the streets or whatever. Uh, and when you're like 12, you should have all the energy in the world. It's not like it's grueling to do two sessions. You just, you can just run for like four hours. You have so much energy. Um, so from a very early age, I was always no days off, just, but not in a way where I felt like I was working. It felt like it was just fun. And then I think um, like going all the way back, like all the way forward to like now, I can play like 60 days in a row. And I think a lot of it comes because when I was 12, 13, eight, whatever it may be, it was very natural for me to just play football for like 50, uh, 365 days in a row. So like, it doesn't feel, when you're doing something you like, it doesn't really feel like work because if I took a day off playing football for like an academy or for, for my school or whatever, I would just be playing football with my friends, like in the park, you know, my days off would be playing football. And I find a lot of the time in poker when you take a day off now, I'm usually doing something poker related anyway. Maybe I'm watching like high stakes poker. Maybe I'm watching a podcast with you guys. Maybe I'm, you know, going over hand history, whatever it may be. And I feel like 
Um, there's a lot of similarities between, you know, like poker now and then football when I was like five or six, maybe that's why I'm like very obsessive. So, so far down the line, you know, whereas if I played one day a week football, just for fun, maybe it would be different now in poker, you know? Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So you had that passion for football when you're young and it seems like that passion at some point transitioned into poker. Me and Rene were just chatting off the air. Like one of the things we both respect about you is your passion for the game, which just doesn't waver after all these years, if anything, it gets stronger. So when did your passion for sports start to maybe waver a little bit? And when did the early poker career start for you? So um, when you're like uh, 15, 16 in England, you have to decide what you're going to do next. So you either stay on at school, like go to sixth form, which is basically like college. Um, you can go to like a separate college, which is like specialist, or you can get a job as like a laborer, like a plumber or a builder or something like this. So when I was 15 or 16, all of my friends, I didn't really like school because I have um, like an obsessive, I can't just do one thing at once. You know, if I, I can't just listen to a teacher speaking to me for an hour. I have to be doing multiple things. So if I'm watching a training video, I'm also like doing things on the side, whatever it is now. But at the time I just couldn't, behave in school because I couldn't listen to the teacher it wasn't like I was like a bad kid or anything I just literally couldn't listen to someone for an hour speak to you and in school you do lessons of one hour in England so like nine till ten ten till eleven eleven till twelve and I just couldn't it was just so boring for me um I did well at school not like amazing but all my friends like my social circle they they were all like very very good at school like straight a students and they all wanted to do like finance economics like uh like good degrees you know so they stayed on at school and did um that and i went to like a specialist college to do sports i, I went to gateside college actually yeah. you may know which is like basically a sports college um and i was running and playing football so um so i basically left my friends then and they would they would basically really love poker so in between the economics lessons or whatever they were, I'm not sure you can hear my dog in the background. Um, in between their lessons, they would play poker all the time, but they were still my best friends. So I wanted to still be with them. So when they left school in the evening, they would go home and continue the poker games because people would be stuck. Like someone would be down $20, so they wanted to win it back. So when I messaged them saying, hey, do you want to come and play football? Do you want to come and do whatever? They were like, oh, no, we're going to play poker. So um so I, I would go and play with them and I, I had no idea what I was doing, obviously, because they would, if, in terms of volume, they would play, you know, like six hours a day and I would play an hour with them after school. So I would just lose, lose, lose. And um, I don't, I don't think anyone likes losing. I don't think it's like specific to me, but nobody likes to just lose, especially in front of all their friends, you know, maybe you make a play, which is really bad and everyone kind of laughs at you because they are all more advanced than you are. Um, and it's not a very nice feeling. So I just decided to to learn to beat my friends, you know, like uh, out of almost embarrassment, I would say. Um, I didn't like poker. I hated it. I wish we were going nightclubbing or I wish we were playing football or wish we were doing something a bit quicker because poker was so slow. Like I said in school, like listening to a teacher, I just can't do. Going to university, I couldn't go to lectures. I had to walk out. I just, it wasn't. It wasn't like an arrogance thing or anything. I just, I wasn't learning that way. So when, when you play live poker with your friends who are like playing so slow, maybe like having a beer in the middle of a hand or whatever, every hand, you'd maybe play like 10 hands an hour, 15 hands an hour um, at the most. And it was just so boring for me because like I said, I just, I, it's, I need things. I need so much stuff to be going on for my mind to start to work. So I hated it really. 
Um, I hated poker at the start, but um, yeah, that's how it, that's how it all started at least. When did you start to love it? Um, I guess I started to basically not really love playing. I didn't really love playing. I started to love reading about poker. So I would basically, again, I, would, I had a job. Um, and in my job, I couldn't just do my job because I can't do one thing at once. So I'd basically have my, if you have like a monitor on half of my screen, I would have my job. I was in finance journalism. And on the other half of my screen, I had two plus two and I would just look through hand histories all day. So I would start to really love poker, uh, in terms of reading about it in terms, but it was just a way of basically satisfying my, um, not boredom, but my attention span, you know, I need, I needed something on the side of my work so that I could actually work because I couldn't, I would have to leave my job because I can't just do one thing at once. I just have this weird, weird mind like that. So, um, yeah, I would, I was basically like a two plus two addict from like, let's say 16, 17 to like 20, I would read two plus two or other forums for all day, you know, just read hand histories, read hand histories, read hand histories at this time, like Tom Dwan, I, uh, Scott Siever, these kind of guys were posting every single day on two plus two. So the information you could read was really, really high level. Everyone give out all the information. This is now like 16 years ago. So, um, yeah. And then I would find other forums, um, like blonde poker in the UK. Um, I would start to, as time would go on, um, I would be refreshing pages so frequently that there was no hand issues left. I started to, it's quite a funny joke between my friends, but I would start going on like gypsy team. It's like a Russian forum. And I started to go on French forums and I would translate the whole forum on like, you know, on Google Chrome translate. And I would just read hand histories all day from Russian forums, French forums, two plus two forums. I wasn't really a profitable player. I wasn't really making money. I wasn't even really grinding because I had a job, but I would spend all day at this job you know, nine till five reading hand histories. Uh, and that started, you know, basically when I was 18 or whatever. Uh, and yeah, so I started to fall in love with it that way um, as a way basically to just conquer my my boredom or whatever with life, so. Yeah, at what point did things start to uh, get a bit of traction and you realize, wait a second, Roland's been obsessed with this game. The hand histories, I can actually beat this game and get good at it. When was that kind of transition moment? So, like at this point, when I was 21, I I had like a really high post count on forums. So basically I was posting all day, reading all day. I knew everyone uh, and a job came up at pokerstrategy.com. They were the biggest poker company in the world by far. Like uh, we had 9 million members um, with, within all the forums and all the people signed up, like 9 million is huge, right? This is like pre-Black Friday. So a job came up there. And I applied for the job, didn't really think I would get it. And I got the job, which was in Gibraltar, Spain. So this was now a way of basically poker, basically. Um, I could basically do what I was doing at my other job, but just full-time with poker. So when I went to this job at pokerstrategy.com, I would be doing my job, but this same thing happened in my mind. I need to be doing something else on the side. So I would have basically like my job on half my monitor, then on the other half of the monitor, I would have like four tables of like rush poker. It's like zoom, but on full tilt at the time. And in a normal job, let's say you work in a bank, if your boss comes around and sees you have four tables of poker, you're going to get fired. Right. But my bosses would come around and they'd be proud that I was playing poker on the side. Right. Because most people who work in poker companies, they're not profitable poker players. They're like, 
like the average guy who works, let's say, at PokerStars, he's, he doesn't play poker professionally or profitably because that's why he works in the... I don't mean this in a condescending manner, but they're like they're office workers rather than poker players. But my bosses really loved that I was a poker player almost. They, they saw me as a poker player rather than, let's say, an employee, where really, like, I wasn't really that big of a poker player at the time. Um, but I would start to just play four tables on the side. My bosses would come around every 30 minutes, like, sweating hands with me. And I was like, wow, like, I can get away with doing my job on one side and then conquering my boredom with four tables of rush poker on the other side. And it was, like, the perfect mix for me. Um, I didn't really have a bankroll at this point because... You know, I wasn't really playing poker, you know, like when I was like 16, 17, 18, I wasn't like building it up from NL25. So I basically, I I was getting paid good money at poker stretch. I think I was getting like 5k a month, which 21 years old, it was pretty good. Um, and I basically just deposited straight away to play 100 Zoom or 100 Rush or whatever it was, or 200 Rush with let's you know like 10, 15 buy-ins and just like to spin it up. Uh, so I never did the grind of like 10 NL, 25 NL, 50 NL, 100 NL. Um, I quickly realized that was both a good thing and a bad thing. The bad thing was I didn't have a game plan because I realized all the hand histories I read were big pots. So whenever anyone posted a hand history on two plus two, it wasn't a six big blind pot or a four big blind pot. It was like a 60 big blind pot or an 80 big blind pot or a 500 big blind pot. So I, I knew really well how to play huge pots, but I had no idea about like a, a, a specific game plan or general game plan. There was no solvers or anything. This is a long, long time ago. So I would play hundred zoom, four tables or whatever. And I had no idea about C-Betting, you know? Like I had no idea about defending the big blind. I had no idea really about ranges. I didn't know which hands to play really, but I knew what people's thought processes were in big pots. So I made a game plan for myself at the time. Um, like I said, I used to read a lot. So there used to be, I'm not sure if you guys remember, there used to be there used to be two main theories on two plus two. One was called Beluga Theorem. Beluga Theorem was uh, if somebody raises on the turn and you have two pair and you have less than two pair, always fold. That was like a specific rule at six max cash. And Zebo Theorem was if anyone ever improves to a full house on that street, they won't fold no matter how much you bet. So these were the two theories which I built my game around. Um, so basically, whenever I got to the turn, and it was a spot where I thought it was tough for someone to have better than ace, better than aces, I would always play very, very aggressively. So if I defended the big blind, uh, Wacko raises the button, uh, Wacko raises under the gun. I call. He c bets jack high board. The turn's a brick. If he bet the turn, I would start turning all my jack x into a bluff, just like ridiculously aggressive, whatever. Um, because I thought, well, the theory is, or the meta game is that, you know, you have to fold aces. It You have to fold aces because people only raise turns with two pair plus. So I just bluffed basically for four or five months, always bluffing, uh, always turning every single hand into a bluff. I don't think I made a single bluff catch in the first three or four months of my career. I always would turn every one pair into a bluff. Uh, and because I was kind of new to the pool and the pools were so big because it's pre-Black Friday, and because the population played so passively, I managed to, be, to become a pretty decent winner. Um, even though I had no specific game plan, I didn't know which hands to raise from each position. I didn't have a coach. I didn't have a community or whatever. But I'd read maybe like 10,000 hand issues at this time, and they were all big pots. So I became like a big pot player. <laughs> so I was really bad in small pots. And I had this really tight style 
uh, like a really nitty style preflop, but I was like crazy at the same time. So it was like, a re I must have been a really weird player to play against because I played no hands, but if I played them, I played them strong, you know? <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, when people saw their huds and they saw this guy, like I was like 1914 or whatever, they were, oh, well, this guy's a nitty, he has to have it. But I was just bluffing, 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 bluffing. Um, so yeah, that was basically my style from a very, very early age uh, in poker. Yeah, love it. And when did you start to get very competitive? I know your personality types, uh, you like to compete, you like to beat people. When did that start to come into your strategy and your approach to poker when you wanted to, to get better? So I, I was playing microgaming at this time. I moved to microgaming. Um, I moved very quickly from like 50, 51, as in like 50 cents, $1 to 510 within like, I'd say maybe like a month, six weeks, like running well, you know, like playing well. Microgaming had no hoods, I think at the time, or you, you were anonymous. No one really knew who you were. I was actually playing anonymous tables as well. So I built a roll up very quickly from, let's say like 2K to, to like 30K, I think something like that. And again, you know, these numbers could be like slightly more, slightly less. I'm not sure. This is more than 15 years ago, but it was, a, it was something around about that. And I'd never had money before in my life ever. I'd never had more than, you know, like a thousand dollars in my bank or whatever. So I really wanted to protect this money. You know, like I had this bankroll. I wasn't trying to, you know, like gamble it all up. I was trying to, I was trying to just eat. I, I was very happy to have a bankroll because when I was 18, 19, 17, I was reading all these two plus two threads thinking, oh, I'm amazing at poker, but I felt too much of an ego to play like 10 and L and build my bankroll up. So I was always like, oh, I wish I had $2,000 so I could grind. I wish I had $5,000 so I could grind. So I spent literally three or four years like wishing I had a bankroll, but not putting the effort in because I was doing so much sport and university and jobs and whatever else. Um, so I never put the effort in to build a bankroll, but I also, if I had a bankroll, I would be better than these guys, you know, that kind of logic, like obviously completely wrong. Um, but so once I got my bankroll, I really wanted to protect it. I did everything not to go broke. And I think, I think every month of my life from probably 21 till like 30, I think I never, my bankroll never went down like at the end of month to month, which was in the end, the biggest leak of my career because I didn't take big enough shots. I sold too much action in certain spots, but my whole investment strategy was uh, basically never to go down. Like I just couldn't, I hated to see my money going down, you know, like it was, which is a very fishy logic because when you're 21, 22, 23, you can always build it back. Like going broke is fine. You know, it's uh, I wish I'd kind of tried to race to hundred K or race to 250 K a lot quicker than I did, but you know, when I just didn't, I just didn't. So at this point, the, you said, where's the competitive part of me? The, the main competition was with myself. It was like, I, I felt like I was fighting against myself not to become a DJ. And um, at this time, again, I'm working at Poker Strategy. So uh, my girlfriend at the time, she was the VIP manager for Poker Strategy. So you have 9 million members. The top 100 members are probably like the highest stake guys in the world at this time. You had people like Phil Grusom, Igor Kurganov. They all came from this German German background of PokerStrategy.com. So whenever we went home, um, so basically my job was head of education. So like, or head of the videos we put out. So my day-to-day -day work would basically be like Jungle Man would send us a video. I would have Jungle Man on one side of my screen 
I'd be watching his videos. On the other side of my screen, I would be playing four tables of whatever. Uh, and then we would have a forum where we paid professionals $1 to reply to every post. So, and then I had to evaluate these guys. So it's loads of things going on, but basically an NL 50 guy would post a hand history and NL 100 guy would reply. We would pay that guy $1 and then I was his boss. I would have to read all the threads he did. So I would be, again, I was still in this phase of reading thousands and thousands and thousands of poker hand histories. So I would go home to dinner, 6 p.m., 7 p.m., sit with my girlfriend at the table. She was a VIP manager. So she would tell me, oh, this guy went broke today. Oh my God, this guy went broke today. This guy lost his money on roulette. This guy, this guy's wife took his money, This whatever it may be. So I was just hearing these stories over and over from my girlfriend that people were losing money, people were losing money. And because I was quite new to money, it's not huge money, but you know, 20K or whatever it was, to me, it felt like everything in the world. I that made me scared of losing because she told me all these guys who I'm seeing as the top players in the world, she's telling me they've lost their bankroll today. They've lost their bankroll today. And I was like, wow, people don't realize what poker players are actually going through. There was no mental game coaches at this time. There's no one like Adam or James or Elliot. They, they, these people didn't exist. So people were basically confiding in that VIP managers. Um, so yeah, I, I, I had a lot of fear from a very early age about losing money, I think. Yeah. And that led you to be quite risk averse, it sounded from the from what two choices you made. Yeah. Right. Have you got any questions? Do you want to jump in right now? No, I can uh, I can actually relate to Pat as well. In the beginning of my career, I went uh, I went broke a couple of times. And that definitely I, I can relate to that. That that definitely leaves some scars in terms of that you're a bit more careful. Like you don't want to re-experience what you've experienced back then, right? For you, I guess it was a bit more of a a threat based on stories you heard of other people. For me, it was more of a threat, like I don't want that to happen again. So you try to do everything in your power for that not to happen again. But it's actually interesting to hear that uh, people obviously nowadays know you as an MTT player. Uh, but in the beginning, you were actually playing Rush. You know, it's a cash game format. When you transition to micro gaming, you mentioned like 510, also cash game format. When did you, uh, so you're mainly playing cash games, but you were still working at poker strategy. When did you transition into becoming like a professional poker player? So when did you kind of leave your job in poker strategy in order to become a professional? Sure. So I was basically playing professionally um, at my job. So I, I, I was playing as much volume as any professional cash game grinder at the time, but I had the security of my job, which I really loved. Again, you know, like risk averse, um, not throwing all my eggs into one basket kind of thing. My parents, I like the fact that, you know, when you leave university, most people, I think the average wage in the UK is probably like, at this time, at least it was probably something like 15 to 20K. So I felt really like proud, you know, I'm making 50K, I'm 21. Like that was something I didn't really want to give up on, even though I was making probably somewhere between like 1K to 10K a month in poker as well. Like it felt to me, oh, wow, let's keep this job. Let's see where this goes. I was I was moving kind of up in the company. I started off in like a lowish position and they saw they whatever I moved up and up and up. And now I'm in like a good position. I've had a few pay rises at this point. Uh, I'm living in Spain, you know, like my friends are in the UK. It's terrible weather. I'm like, oh, this is great. I'm seeing the world. I have a good job. I'm making money playing poker. I'm 21. This is great. And then one day, uh, poker became illegal in Spain. Um, it, you know, the regulating markets, mm -hmm. this happened, I guess when I was, this happened like 11 years ago, which is crazy to think, but 
Spanish players used to be able to play on PokerStars, whatever, and that's all micro gaming or iPoker, full tilt. Um, and then one day Spain said, no, no, we're closing the doors. So that was a big blow for me because poker strategy were based there. So I had to make a decision. I had to decide, okay, I stay in my job. I basically quit poker, um, playing poker. I try to get a job, you know, have a goal of maybe making hundred K a year, like, you know, like a senior level position there, or do I go and try to do this full time? Um, my girlfriend, again, she was looking after all the supernova elites and they were the guys who were like a lot higher than me. I felt these are the serious guys, you know, like these are the professionals. If you're supernova elite, I think you used to get, was it a hundred K at the end of the year or something? Yeah, or like more, 200K. Yeah. So I felt like, well, this is a salary, you know, like that is the comfort zone. That is the safety net of a salary. Even if it goes bad or whatever, if I put the work in, I know I can do better than these guys because they have such huge mental game problems. At least that's what I was hearing. I was like, I can do this. Like, I, I feel prepared for this. So we decided to move to Hungary, which is where my girlfriend was from. And we, yeah, we moved to Hungary and I decided to go for Supernova Elite. But we moved to Hungary, I think, let's just, I don't know which month, some, anywhere between say March to August, I don't know, like the middle of the year. So I decided I'm gonna spend six months to get a game plan because I realized I didn't really have a game plan at this point. You know, I was just a big, I was still a big pot player. It was like big pot pads at the time. I'm gonna to go to Hungary and I'm gonna to start to play some small pots. Uh, and yeah, I basically just started to learn a bit more. I got some coaching from, I'm not sure you know this guy, uh, internet, Paul Otto. Do you know yeah, do you yeah, him? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. German guy, right? German guy. He was like known as the theory guy uh, at the time. And I was like, I wasn't a theory. I was big pot pads, right? Um, so I, I, um, I, I got some coaching from him. I started to, I had more times I'd watch. Again, you know, training videos at the time was always people showing like huge hands. Like to me, poker was just like this huge hand game. I didn't really even think about small pots. It wasn't, I don't think small pot, poker really came around properly until solvers came around where people started talking about like betting your range 30% on, on, on flops and stuff like that. That really wasn't a thing. People just used to bet half pot. If they see bet, they bet half pot. And then you went from there. There was no real, of course there was guys, you know, I'm talking about, I'm playing one, two, two, four, three, six at the time. Of course there was guys playing 25, 50 who were on a, a deeper level. But at the time, yeah. the standard theoretically was very, very low, you know? Um, so I went to Hungary. I spent a few months getting better at poker because I, I don't think I was a great poker player at this time. Uh, and then January came around. I was prepared. I was ready. And I was like going for Supernova Elite. So I would play eight tables of Zoom, which is quite difficult. But from an early part of my career, I realized volume is everything. Like even to now, that's my biggest strength in poker. It's not about... It's not about how I play. It's not about why I know. It's all about volume for me. I think that's my strongest strongest attribute as a player. So I realized early on I need to get good at volume in Zoom to get Supernova Elite. So for those six months, I learned to go from two tables of Zoom to four tables, from four tables to six tables, from six tables to eight tables. I didn't just start eight tabling. Uh, and then every day, it sounds this sounds crazy, and I wouldn't recommend it to your viewers, but I would have I would start my session before my session. I would have uh, two Smirnoff Ices. Do you know what Smirnoff Ices? Yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. A, it's like um, it's like an alcohol magic not too poison alcohol. for for great poker, right? It give me it, well, it give me the buzz for big pots. It, it made me play some big pots. Uh, I would have two Smirnoff Ices. I would load up my eight tables of Zoom or Rush, and I would keep playing. 
And if I was losing, I would just keep playing until I got back to even. Uh, and that was my plan every day. For And I did that for, I think, two months-ish, two months, two months' time. Uh, and then story is quite well known, whatever, now. But I went to... Uh, I basically played one Sunday. I never really played Sundays at the time. I played one Sunday uh, in England uh, in a hotel room and I played probably 10 tournaments and I won three tournaments out of 10, which is obviously crazy. Look, at this point, I'm terrible at tournaments. I have no idea about stack. I've never played with less than 100 big blinds ever. Like you can't really play big pots when you have 10 big blinds. You know, this was not my forte at all. So I had this crazy run and I was like, wow, I hate talk. I was like, okay, I've made like 60K here, which was probably doubled my bankroll, I guess, at the time-ish. Um, but I was like, I still don't like these tournaments. So I went back, I played at my eight tables, spin off ices uh, for the next week. Sunday came around, I was like, okay, I'll give back 2K more to these guys. You know, they deserve, I feel guilty hitting running or whatever. Um, and then I won two tournaments that day again for like 60K. And I'm like, again, I'm, I have a blog at this point. I'm like, Tournaments are stupid. I just ran. I, I was realizing I was running good. And then the next week, uh, I was like, okay, well, I'll give a bit more back again. And it was the anniversary Sunday million. Um, I'm not sure you guys, you, it still goes on now, right? It's like 10 million guarantee or whatever. So I, I final table this. I come, uh, it's like 40,000 runners or whatever, right? I come ninth for 100K. So uh, at this point, I now have like a bankroll of 300K-ish or like maybe 250K, where that was my goal for the whole year, to grind Supernova Elite, get paid this 200K at the end of the year, and have like a proper bankroll like that, and like maybe, I don't know, buy a house or whatever. The whole idea was grind a year every day, reevaluate at the end of the year, show my parents my graph of the rake back and everything, like prove to my girlfriend, prove to everyone, okay, this is a career, like I've been a professional about it. But then within three weeks, at the start of the year, I basically achieved more than that, amount of money and then I have to decide okay do I play cash or do I play tournaments um I don't think my game was very good for cash I wasn't like the biggest I was not a huge crusher at 500 zoom or anything like at all my game was fully fully like big pot pads you know like I, I liked I didn't really enjoy the whole like mechanical part of you know like small raise I used to, I didn't really like to raise the button with 10 line offsuit I'd rather fold 10 line offsuit on the button or I'd rather fold king 10 offsuit on the button and get dealt pocket sevens under the gun so I could flop a set, you know, like I didn't, I, I wasn't stimulated by playing these, like, I didn't want to grind it out, out, out like this. Even if I was telling myself in, inside that this is what I wanted to do, be supernova elite, be the grinder, deep down, I didn't enjoy that part of poker, you know, um, I used to cold call free bets with any pocket pair, like, so if it went raise under the gun, free bet, hijack, I would cold call, like, fours plus on the button like if we were more than 100 big blinds deep because maybe i can flop a set maybe i can play a big pot you know so i i wasn't really well suited to cash games you know um i'd done well out of them but that was just because the pool was so bad if i hadn't went done well at tournaments and solvers came around if i didn't adapt to the solvers or if i didn't download solvers or whatever i would have been wiped out i wouldn't have i would have been i would have been one of those guys who basically got made to go back to get a job you know because it wasn't it wasn't really suited for me at the time um i wasn't really prepared to put the work in from a studying point of view i wanted to play 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 all day every day um i would have been wiped out basically so i was so lucky from a tournament point of view that i had these wins not necessarily for the money 
but for, for my longevity in poker, because I don't think I would have been around because Solvers probably came out, I guess, two years afterwards or something like this. And I would have just got destroyed once people started range Seabet and then all this kind of stuff because I, I I wouldn't have done it. I would have still, I think, had that. It's not. It wasn't really a degenerate side because I, I wasn't chasing money, but I, I would have had it, my game, the way that I like to play wouldn't have been well suited to that, I don't think. Um, but yeah, that's with hindsight, looking back now. I didn't notice at the time, obviously. You were trying to get yourself in spots where you felt like you had an edge. That was big pots, right? That's where you had all the experience. So it's like, okay, I need to get in big pots because that's where I know what to do. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and, and it wasn't that I knew what I needed to do. It's what I knew what other people would do because, um, again, at this point, I've literally probably read 50,000 hand histories, like a lot, you know, probably more, probably more. And most people have probably read less than, you know, a thousand at this point. Like I really... At this point, I think when I'm 23 years old, I've, I would guess, I'd, this is not like ego or arrogant or anything. It's just, I think I've, at this point, I've read more hand histories in the world than anybody else at 23. I'm not, I'm not an amazing poker player. I don't have a great technical game. I don't, I'm not well studied. I don't have, I'm not using, there, there isn't solvers to use. Um, I'm, I'm not thinking in maths. I'm not thinking in pot odds. I never, ever looked at pot odds ever before I was 23, ever. Like my whole game was just knowing what other people thought in big pots and making them fold or fold in my range. Uh, and that was enough to be a, a decent winner because, you know, when you're playing 50, 60, 70 big blind pots, if you're making really good decisions in these pots, it doesn't matter too much if you're losing, you know, like 0.5 BB here, 0.5 BB here, um, especially when everyone else is playing small pots quite badly too. People are missing range C bets against me. People are not check raising the big blind against me. People are not punishing my like very face up sizes on the flop of the turn, which I'm not caring about, you know? So yeah, basically, basically uh, that's how it is. Uh, that, that's how it was, I guess. Yeah. I mean, and it's still the same today, right? It's not about being the best poker players, it's about being better than your competition. So you might reflect on it to be like, wow, it was quite bad. But then again, the rest was significantly worse. It's quite interesting also that you said, because normally people kind of, at some point have their job be in the way of their poker career but because of the job that you had it kind of contributed to your poker career so that's also why you kind of could be a pro and have your job which was uh, uh yeah a very good position to be in uh, i would say when you transitioned to tournaments what were some of the things that what are some of the difficulties you ran into transitioning from cash to tournaments so i remember very vividly I played a hand against European, uh, who's now like my best friend in poker, let's say. But this was 11 years ago. I think maybe 10 years ago. I'm not sure exactly. But we played a pot where basically I raised. I think he he jammed. He jammed. Let's just say he jammed anywhere between 15 to 30 big blinds. I made a call with whatever hand I made a call with. And then he wrote me the next day. He wrote me the next day. And he was like, uh, I, he, he, at the time, Sam was funny. He just like, dude, you can't call that. Like, what are you doing? And then I was like, I was like, I was like, well, I don't, I don't know. Can I? I don't know. I'd never looked at anything before. I was just playing off. I was just playing off, you know, feeling. Uh, and then I, I replied to him because I respected him. I knew he was very good, and he was very, he, he was quite studied and stuff. Uh, he was running like, Isomizer, I guess, was out at the time. Uh, and I, re I replied back, oh, I have a read on you. Like, I have a note, and I made up like a fake note and sent him a screenshot of like me raised of him like shoving like a bad hand for this amount of big blinds it was like european 
jams ace deuce off for 36 big blinds, whatever it may be, and I sent it to him. So then I kind of realized, okay, like I need to get a bit better because the other regs think I'm quite bad. So that was like an egotistical thing. Um, so I started to speak more to European Sam after he reached out then, and then we started to speak more. And we realized that we thought quite similar about the game, actually, even though like he thought I played bad in that hand. We had very similar, uh, very similar opinions on how population played. He's a very observant guy. So although he hadn't read, you know, 50,000 hand histories or whatever, he just picked it up himself. Um, he picked it up himself just from being observant and watching. And we realized we have very similar thoughts on how people are playing. Um, so we started speaking every day and then we were like, for our age, we had too much money, but there was no high games to play like that. The highest stake tournament a week was like $200, maybe like $400, $500 once a week. Like there was no like 10Ks, 5Ks. So we were like very young. We had a lot of money, but we were quite risk averse. So like we weren't trying to spin it up in high stakes cash games. So we weren't trying to play super high rollers in Berlin or something like this. So we had too much money for our age, but we thought we had a strategy which worked against population because there was no solvers. So we were like, let's put our money together uh give it to other people tell them what we do tell them the reads we have on the population and they will do it and then we can just turn you know 500k into a million whatever it may be uh so that's what we did we made um we made a staking team and he was like i have this guy who's a bit older a bit more like being around longer than we have uh he's like we we were very new we'd been playing for like two years let's say but there's a guy who'd been playing for like six years called Elmerix who was Finnish as well he was like let's bring him in he's a bit more uh not serious but he's a bit more experienced than us mm -hmm. and let's do it as a trio I'd never met Elmerix before but I was like sure let's do it and then we made Bitby which was a staking team and we we started with like five ten guys let's say um yeah we started with like five ten guys we give them our strategy and it worked really well from straight away uh and yeah that's that's basically what we did. Okay, interesting. So basically, you were trying to look how you could optimize your hourly, but given the cap of tournament buy-ins there were, they were like, okay, grinding more for us is not going to contribute to necessarily more money. Let's teach what we know to other players. Let them grind more at the stakes that they were, and this way we can have a higher hourly, basically. Yeah, so basically, I, I was doing exactly the same in tournament. You know, tournaments are always like two years behind cash games, so... Like if cash game guys work out how to bet big on like nine high boards or eight high boards because you want to put in lots of money with your over pairs and your top pairs and you want to clean your outs when you have jack 10 making jack fold like that will come in cash games in say 2016 it'll come in tournaments in 2017 or 18 you know so cash games are always one or two years ahead of tournaments so when i went into tournaments i was using the same things from cash games to play the tournament so i was using the same strategies essentially uh -huh. And I think after after six months of playing tournaments, I was number one in the world in tournaments. I'd never played a tournament before. Uh, so I got to number one in the world really quickly without knowing how to play tournaments. You know, I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't do any studying of less than 30 big blinds, pre-flop or post-flop. All I was doing was putting all of these cash game, again, all these hand issues I've ever read on all these forums, they were only cash game hand issues, not tournaments. So all this information I kind of had, Sorry, all this information I kind of had, I put these from into tournaments straight away and just rolled it out for six months. I bluffed everyone on every turn. I bluffed everyone on every river. I never bluff catched at all at this point. I turned everything into a bluff. Uh, and 
six months, basically people folded every spot to me. Uh, and yeah, I got to number one in the world by like this supernova elite year. I think I was number one in the world by like September. And I think I didn't start this tournament grind until like February ish. So everything is completely different to how I planned it in January, you know, from this whole supernova elite grind, or whatever. So actually the things that made you a very good cash game player were very easily transitioned into tournaments because it was more, it wasn't necessarily certain strategic things. It was an overall principle of I'm going to be very aggressive because the pool overfolds and I'm going to overfold when the pool is very aggressive because they're too passive, which applied. I mean, it came from human nature, right? So it applied to both cash games and tournaments. But I, I was not an aggressive player. I just, I was very, I, I was, if people looked at me, I was very tight. I, I RFI'd more than, less than they did. You know, I, I see bet the flop less than they did. I didn't do constant small aggression. It was big. It was still big pot pads, you know, like I, I wasn't, I wasn't an aggressive player really. Like to, I was like, if I looked at my stats, I would have probably had like a 50% C bet in position. I, I'm just making numbers up, but 50% C bet in position, like a, an RFI on the button of maybe like 38%, you know, where really I should have probably had an European, for example, who was very aggressive he had an RFI on the button of 65%. So we had very different styles in terms of an overall game plan. So he used to raise 65% uh, preflop and he used to C-bet 100%. That was his strategy. I raised 35% on the button and I missed range C-bets all the time because I wasn't really thinking about it. I wasn't really too worried about it, you know? Um, so we had very different approaches, but we had very similar opinions on how people, other people played, you know? So we had opinions on what their what their size and meant, you know, like when they bet 40% when they, instead of 50 or when they bet 120% instead of 90 or when they uh, bet the river after the flush draw bricked on the turn for different sizes, what everything meant, you know, like we were very much like our mechanics came very much from a psychological point of view together. And we, we had very strong, similar beliefs on them uh, and we agreed on and built them up. But we had very different overall game plans, I would say. And I would I would say the biggest difficulties I had in my career were trying to change my game plan to a different game plan. So, for example, when Solvers came out, I would post a hand history where I bet, I see bet flop, you know, like I, I potted the flop on, let's just say, let's say the board is 10, 6, deuce. I potted the flop. And then people would reply saying, that's not a thing. And you, you know, you've heard like poker players say, that's not a thing. And I, I believed them straight away. Like, I, or I listened to them straight away. Um, and I started to really doubt myself, all the success I'd had, you know, this, this immediate, like getting to number one in the world, this like really good cash game results from like a, a, a game plan I'd made. I started to try to change it completely and like try to play like European or tried to play like other guys in my stable who would run Sims on PL Solver. But I didn't realize at the time that, of course, if they run a sim with 30% and pot, sure, the solver may say only bet 30%. But if they removed 30% from the sim and had 100%, probably the solver would bet pot quite often, right? So it can be a thing. It may be together with a smaller CBIT size. It's not necessarily as high EV. However, if I play loads of big pots and get people into big pots on the river where they're going to make mistakes for 10 big blinds, 20 big blinds, 30 big blinds or whatever, it certainly would be a thing, you know? So if people um, get into really big pots against me and I make really good uh, decisions, 
it's going to make me a lot more money as an overall strategy. And it definitely would be a thing compared to, you know, just trying to settle for this range seabed on the flop to make, you know, like over, uh, over cards with backdoor flush draws and different, whatever it may be. Uh, so I started to change my approach for, I would say two to three years. And I think it really hurt my game, uh, trying to listen to others or this was the difficulties of being in a community. Uh, I'd done everything solo. I used to read hand histories by myself. I used to see how other people played. Everything was solo. Then I went into a community, which I built, you know, Bitby. But I went into a community and I was like, well, I, I should be trying to play like you guys, you know, like, oh, I would post a hand history and people would reply saying, oh, that's not a thing, or this is not a thing, or that doesn't make any sense. It did make sense in my mind, but I started to have this, um, I started to have this kind of, out you know like am i just lucky like is this all just been luck or whatever and i started being like okay i need to change my game completely i need to go to be in this like small ball kind of player uh and i think for two years or so this ps over just come out it really really hurt my game and I, I i turned from i think very very good to basically like not mediocre but like like a slightly winning player um and i think that was about because I was in a community, um, all the people in the community I love, you know, like the the guys staking, whatever, like all great guys, like all amazing at poker. But I think this just shows that sometimes being in a community, it sounds like it's the best idea, but sometimes it's not the best idea. Because for me, if you're in a poker community, um, there's two reasons to post a hand history, right? The first reason is you post a theoretical hand. So like the, uh, I raise the button, big blind calls, the flop is king two four. Uh, should I see bet 20%? Should I see bet 50%? Should I have checkbacks with queens and jacks and start betting a polarized range? Should I go after A size? Should I go after bottom pairs? What should I go after, right? So like, that's a theoretical question. I think posting that in the community and getting like a uh, debate going is definitely not as good as going to a solver, looking, okay, which hands should I bet for this size? And okay, well, let's run a script and see which hands fall into bet 20%, which hands fall into bet pot, whatever it may be and really going into it deeply theory to get an understanding like that for me is almost certainly better than being in a community. Then the other side of the question is uh, an exploit. Sorry. The other questions you can ask are exploitative questions. So do people bluff here or do people fold here? This kind of question. And I start seeing people saying like completely different things to, to what I thought. And I was like starting to doubt myself. Like it was a spot where I would say no one ever bluffs here. And then everyone would be like, oh yeah, everyone always bluffs here. And then I, I realized from like a pretty early po point that people play differently versus different people, right? Like if we play, if if me, you two, and my dad play a four-handed sit and go, and my dad defends the big blind, you're going to see bet a different strategy against my dad than you are against me, right? You're going to bluff differently against my dad on the river than you are against me. You're going to bluff catch differently against my dad on the river than you are against me, right? So if my game plan is a very different game plan to all these other people who are like betting very small and, you know, like playing small ball. Whereas my game plan is big pots, put people into tough situations. Of course, I'm going to have a different view on how population play on the river. Right. So in a community, in a community, it can be quite different because not everyone plays the same strategy. So you are going to have different points of view about how population play. Uh, so, so being in a community, you can post a theoretical question, which I think it's better to do by yourself scripts, solvers, etc., and exploitative stuff, I think it's going to be different based on who you are. You know, like if, if you have a guy in a community who plays NL, uh, who plays 
mid-stakes tournaments and a guy in a community like European or uh, Lena or Ben CB or whoever who plays high stakes, people will play differently against different profiles. You know, like people play differently against Phil Helmuth and, and that's why he's a winning poker player. It's not because of his technical game. It's because people play differently against him than they would do against me and you two, you know? So for me, I think being in a community actually hurt me quite a lot, not because the guys were bad guys or anything, but because I was starting to hear and read conflict and things about all of these things. And, uh, I would say for two games, it, it kind of messed my game up a little bit. Um, so, yeah. I guess it, it sounded like it gave a lot of sort of noise. You, in the beginning, had quite a clear idea of what was going on. You were quite confident in your ability. And actually, quite often, I would say that what you do strategically, obviously, it matters. But the person who shows up with most confidence in his strategy has the ability to execute that strategy to the best of his capabilities, which in the end, like you said, in the solver, you can make a solver play very strategy. In the end, it's the execution of your strategy is going to determine how big of a winner you're going to be, not the actual strategy itself, right? It's also something that you mentioned. You were very good in playing rivers. Then using a flop strategy that CBET may be a bit less and that allows you to get to the river more often where you're going to make very good decisions is actually a, a higher EV strategy, right? than what the solver actually suggests. Obviously, the solver doesn't do that because the solver is going to play optimal on the river. You're not going to make better decisions than the solver on the river. Uh, but I can definitely understand that then if solvers come out and uh, other smart people are talking to you, you need very big balls and very big confidence to say, okay, this computer thing is wrong. I'm right, right? It's it's quite hard to say. Like, okay, I'm, I'm best. I'm smarter than the solver. Well, yeah, all I think... I, I didn't do that. What I should have done is just put my strategy into the solver and see what does the solver say about it, you know? Because, you know, I think the strategy which I was playing at the time was actually solver approved. The only problem is if you run other sizes with your sizes as well, the solver may slightly prefer a different size, which makes the whole strategy seem wrong. So when someone runs a strategy, when someone runs a sim, let's say again, nine high board, I post that post me betting 200% pot. I used to bet 200% pot on nine high, eight high, seven high, somehow, some, sometimes 10 high boards. I used to bet really big. Uh, and if someone puts this into a solver betting 150% and, and their size, and which is say 30%, the solver probably will say, yeah, bet 30 with your range, you know? But if they took out that bet 30, like my, my, my strategy wouldn't just be like a made up thing. You know, it would have been like a, it, it may not have bet all the hands in my range, it may have went from 100% frequency to like a 60% frequency and a more of a polarized strategy. But that's what I was doing, you know, because I told you I was missing C bets. I wasn't playing these small bets. I was playing big bets. But when you play big bets, you play more polarized. So it makes more sense to actually not bet your whole range. It makes more sense for your frequencies to be a bit lower. So when people say, oh, how didn't you see bet here? You missed a range C bet. Uh, or, oh my God, this is lazy. You missed a range C bet. I would hear this all the time. And that would make me feel guilt. Oh, wow, I need to to find these range C bets. When in reality, my strategy of betting not very often, but very big is actually a strategy 10 years later, which a lot of people use. And actually now is my strategy again, you know? So the way that I play now, if I ever have an opportunity to play a strategy which I can incorporate small sizings or incorporate big sizings, I will always incorporate the bigger sizings. Um, I also think there's there's a lot of reasons about this without going too, too into depth, but I think... People play very well against small sizes on the flop now. They didn't used to, but they play very well now. But some the two things which I imagine in cash games too, but definitely in tournaments that people play really poorly against is 
um, plane probes. So when flop goes check, check, plane is a probe bet. And the second thing is plane versus delay c-bets. I worked out very quickly that the population check raise versus delay c-bet was less than 2%. So nobody ever um, would check raise the turn after the flop went check, check. So straight away, if you just do like a, again, I'm not really into node locking too much because it changes things so drastically. But just from that point of view, if I go for a big polarized uh, strategy on the flop and then play turns really well after the check, check node, people are going to be playing really poorly against that. And that's actually a really good strategy to play. And that's kind of how I was playing. I was min betting turns. So I would basically see bet big on the flop and check a lot. And if they checked the turn, I would min bet my whole range. And it was actually a pretty good strategy because they would probe the turn with all their top pairs, with their draws. And the stuff which was left in their range on the turn was lots of air, lots of ace highs, and lots of bottom pairs. So when they just called my min bit on the turn, I was doing funky stuff. I was like 10x pot and rivers, 6x pot and rivers, maybe value betting, you know, half pot, going for thin value. That There's so many ways around the tree. And, and I enjoyed that, you know, because... Again, I'd read all these hand histories and now I'd gone from reading, I'd gone from reading, you know, like theories on two plus two to having a stable of like a hundred guys who would send me full hand histories every day, you know, like their full tournament play. So I started really quickly uh, reading even more hand histories, right? I was, people were posting on a disc, we had Skype or Discord, I'm not sure at the time, but people would post, there'd be literally thousands and thousands of hands posted a week. I would get, I would read everyone's logic, thought processes from like mid stakes, small stakes, high stakes. Um, I would read what other coaches thought. I would see full hand histories of players. Um, so at this point, like I, I consumed so much information of how other people thought that I should have been brave enough. I should have been strong enough. I should have had enough self-will to say, fuck this, like trying to imitate other people. And I say this a lot, but everyone should always try to be the best version of themselves, not a bad version of somebody else. So like, if you see somebody like, if you see somebody like Michael Adamo, for example, who's a crazy tournament guy who bluffs a lot, like it's hard to play that strategy. So if you start trying to be Michael Adamo, you're probably going to be a bad version of him rather than if you be a good version of yourself, you know? And everyone gets to a professional poker. Everyone gets to the level of being a professional because they're strong at something. You know, like I was good at playing these big pots. Doug says hi. I, I was good at playing these big pots. So that's how I became a professional poker player. Uh, other people became a professional poker player because they understood math. Other people became a professional poker player because they really understood, you know, solve a like small ball strategy. Other people become poker pros because they're really good at live tells. Everyone be, everyone gets to the level of being better than their friends or better than their casino game or better than their home game or better than whatever because they're strong at one point. No one's just like um, Linus Love in the first day to play poker. Everyone's good at one thing usually. No one's really good at everything. You're always good at one thing. And I, I was good at playing these big pots and very bad at small pots, but I should have probably realized that. But it's hard to realize. Like, this is all with hindsight. I've been playing poker 16 years now, whatever. But my biggest advice is if, if you if you break through from, say, university poker, if you break through from a home game, realize, like, why why am I beating these guys? Is it because I'm really aggressive? Can I push people around? Am I really good at free bet and free flop and they're pushing people around that way? Do I work out... I fold the rivers when everyone, whenever anyone bets. Like people, people are good at poker for a reason. Yeah, but no one's Linus Love after their first two months in poker, right? So really try to emphasize what you're good at and build your game plan around that because you'll enjoy it more. 
right? Because if you play poker and you get good and you keep playing and you move up the stakes, you're good at that. You probably enjoy it. Try to make your strategy around that, which is still solver approved or whatever, but don't try to just like, it's like if you're a boxer, you know, Tyson Fury, best boxer in the world. Mm -hmm. He used to probably fight the same way he does now to how he was when he was 18. You know, he has this like weird style, like fainting, gangly, like doing all this stuff. If he tried to just be like Joshua in his next fight, or if he tried to be Usic or whoever in his next fight, he probably wouldn't be as good as being himself, you know? Um, So, you know, I think, I think it's important. I think, Tyson Fury basically becomes the best version of his style, which made him go from an amateur to a professional. He didn't start trying to be like a different kind of boxer. And I think poker is the same. You know, I think probably anything is the same. You know, I think Messi is not trying to become a, you know, like physical kind of guy who's like winning headers and running back and all this kind of stuff. He's probably just a better version of how he was when he was 16. I don't think the difference of Lionel Messi when he's 34 to 16 is probably that much. He's probably just more efficient. He's probably just that little bit better, that little bit more experienced, you know, same as, same as any, any, anyone. And I think most footballers actually get bad once they try to start being a different kind of player, you know, like, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe it's, too much deal but harry kane basically he was the top top striker in the world and then early on this season and last season he started to drop really deep and not really be a striker anymore he started to play like a really deep role and he he didn't score for like so many games and everyone was like trying to get him dropped from the england team the spurs fans were booing him and stuff like this and then now he's kind of said okay i'm gonna go back to uh, uh, conte came in he said look you stay in the box we're gonna find you you do what you're good at, you scores our goals. And now he's going back to what he was probably when he was 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. And now he's being the best version of himself rather than trying to be, you know, like a, trying to imitate somebody else's game, which is not why he's a professional footballer. You know? uh, that's very good advice. And this, this should not be mistaken with that you shouldn't improve, but you're saying know what your strength is and try to expand your game from that. But don't, don't lose touch with what brought you there in the first place, right? 100%. And I think this is every single poker player's big, including mine for years, biggest uh, weakness and the biggest thing which stops them from excelling. You know, I really, I really think that. Adam, I'm sure you have a lot of questions for, for Pat after that uh, bomb of wisdom that he just dropped there on the podcast. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I like that advice of fine-tune yourself. I think it takes a lot of self-awareness to know like, what you're good at and to not deviate from it like you said you were big pot pads but even then you kind of um lost yourself for, for moments because you had lots of inputs people trying to tell you to play different ways and i think as you're starting out in something and you lack a bit of confidence it's really hard to uh put the noise to one side and just like be the best version of you and get dragged around by everyone in your environment so yeah, i really l- like the advice just to uh, continue to come back to uh, the best version of you and fine tuning that and finding what that is what that means for you yeah i think it's really really good advice so for you when you were coming up um when, when you're on your the mdt grind and you're trying to get to that number one ranking what was motivating you was it the achievements of being one of the best in the world was there some chip on your shoulder what was what was the initial drive to get to where you got to, to the top uh it's a good question um i guess tough question you know like I was like 22, 23. I'm not sure exactly how old. It's like, first of all, it's quite cool, you know, to try to be the best poker player in the world, you know. Um, I'm not saying it makes you the best poker player in the world, um, but it's quite cool to be there, you know. I'm actually number one now as well on, in, on Pocket Fives in the world. So, like, this is 10 years later. So, for me, that's something which I've always kind of been 
not necessarily striving towards. It's something which I'm quite proud about. I know it doesn't make you the best poker player in the world. I know it doesn't make mean you've made the most money in the world. I know it doesn't mean your strategy is better than everyone else's in the world. I know not everyone opts in. I know every some people, for tax reasons, may not opt in, whatever it may be. I'm sure at the time, some people probably went opt in. I don't know, but I can't handle that. You know, I can't control that. For me, I feel like it's a way of being accepted from others in your life, you know, maybe by your family, by that they... But that they are, you know, like uh, they they accept your decision to be a professional poker player. You know, you've gone to university. You're supposed to be a journalist. You know, it's like your son wants to be a professional gambler. All of a sudden, it's quite telling your telling your brothers or your sisters or your your friends at work. Oh, my son's a poker player now. You know, maybe it doesn't sound so good. But if you say, oh, he's the number one poker player in the world. You know, I'm, again, I'm not saying I was the number one poker player in the world, but he's ranked number one in the world. Let's say I think that's like. For, for my parents, for that kind of stuff, I think that 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 was maybe one thing. Um, also from like a social point of thing, you know, going out and meeting people, say when introducing yourself as a poker player can be seen as bad. If they are oh, in poker players, have you won anything? Or like, do you win? Oh, I'm actually like number one in the world. That straight away gives you like a little bit more like credit of not being a degenerate or whatever. Um, so that was one thing. Uh, it was never about the money ever. Like it was never ever about the money to make money. Um, it was always about the competition. I love to play against these guys who I'd never played against before. So it's like, remember, I'd only played cash games and now I move into tournaments. I'd never I'd never met these guys before. I'd never battled against these guys before. So it's like, there was a new pool of people I could battle against every day uh, with my strategy, which was very different to theirs. They were, the tournament strategy and the cash game strategy was completely, completely different. Um, stylistically, the meta in tournaments was to four bet or fold a lot uh so and and to free bet a lot no cold calling whereas my strategy was i i had like a 25 percent fold to free bets and i didn't i never four bet bluffed really i just used to call free bets and just play pots uh and tournament players at the time were very uncomfortable playing three bet pots and four bet pots well three bet pots mostly because most people didn't call most people used to like four bet or fold like that was the meta so I played free bet pots for like a year against people who never played free bet pots hardly apart from against me and European and a few other guys because other people would just four bet call very wide and four bet fold the other parts of their range. Maybe they would call pocket pairs and like king queen suited. Whereas I was calling, you know, nine, 10 suited and king nine suited and ace five suited and stuff. And, you know, putting them into difficult situations. I was basically repping a set on every board because they would think I always had a pocket pair. So they didn't imagine I was going to bluff pocket eights on like nine, five, two, uh, so I would just turn all of my hands into bluffs and they weren't really prepared for it. So that was quite fun, you know, making a strategy and then executing it is always very fun. So um, right now I'm actually uh, in Europe, basically making a game plan for for two months. I do this every year. So I go away and I just write my whole game plan down. So I do every single board, every single position, every single stack size, every single thing pre-flop. And I just write down my strategy. Um, I make sure it's all solved or approved. I make sure that um, I'm doing things differently to how other people do it. I make sure that people will not be necessarily prepared for what I'm going to be doing. Maybe I start incorporating like a limping strategy from a certain position, whatever it may be. Um, but I go away for months at a time. I don't grind. I just grind on Sundays. And for eight hours a day or 10 hours a day, I just basically make a strategy for two or three months. And then I come back in scoop. And I play from basically scoop till the end of the year, like seven or eight months of very, very intense volume and grinding. And yeah, I re 
I really like the idea of making a strategy myself and then rolling it out for like a lot of time. And then I save so many hand histories every session. So I save about a hundred hand histories a session. And then when I go away for these two months, I basically have like 5,000 hands, which I go over. And then it's not just hand histories of what I'm unsure about, but it's hand histories of my strategy. So if I find myself 5x pot in the river, or if I find myself 2x pot in the turn, or if I find myself checking back the flop, or if I find myself shoving pre-flop, and maybe I think it's good, not 100% sure, I will always just save it. And then when I go away to this like kind of camp where I am now, I will go over all of this stuff from the last however much time, and I will work out, is this good? Is it not good? Um, I write down everything on like, uh, like even pen and paper. Uh, I put everything into documents. I try to be as organized as possible. And I really enjoy this period. So this period of like making my strategy is really fun. And it makes the execution of playing the volume a lot more fun because I have this strategy, which I'm really excited to roll out, you know? So, um, so yeah, that's kind of what I've done over the last like years i think yeah i've done this for the last three years now um and it's something which i've, I've loved doing and basically the the years before that where i said i was like kind of struggling from going what from what i think was a really 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 good player to a very like slightly winning player like with a, a strategy i wasn't comfortable with this that was a period of playing which didn't make me very happy it was like kind of a, a sad time of playing i didn't get too much enjoyment out of it whereas now the last three or four years it's completely back to like my old self where it's like very solo work. I do all of this by myself. I'm not like in a boot camp. I'm not like with other people. I'm doing it. It's my strategy. It's not mine and someone else's. It's all my strategy. Uh, no one can really question it or like put doubts in my mind. Uh, so this now is what I like to do. Um, this is where I, how I get enjoyment or this, yeah, making a strategy, executing it, rolling it out. That's, that's, that's what I love to do now. Yeah, I love that. And yeah, it sounds like for you, you enjoy going to the lab and getting your own ideas together, creating a new strategy for the next few months and then executing on that strategy for a series. And yeah, I love that so many years into your poker career, you've still got the passion to do that. It'd be very easy for you, Sat, as currently the number one ranked player in the world, just to play your strategy. I'm sure it's amazing. But for you, uh, that's not where the motivation is. That's not where your current drives are. You want to uh, keep evolving, keep learning, keep uh, challenge yourself to come with even better strategies. So yeah, really, really good. So for you, uh, obviously you first got to the number one ranking, I think six months into your MTT career. Now we're like 10 years later in the future and you're back at the top of the rankings once again. How does it feel now compared to uh, how it felt back then? Um, kind of different. It's, um, it, it's a bit weird now. Uh, I think it, it's weird. There's so, there's so many solvers around now, right? Compared to then. I think then was very much like who has the best solver, um, sorry, who has the best strategy will will be the best in when before the solvers came out. Now solvers really dictate a lot of a lot of stuff. So I felt it's more of an accomplishment then than it is now. Um, I think now it's more about you know hard work, you know, like being organized, being strict. Like I would, I didn't have to go away for two or three months, you know, when I was twenty two or whatever. I just played. Um, but I think now it's now it's more about hard work, you know. It's also more about having a bigger bankroll. So like I can play everything with with complete com with complete comfort. When I was like coming up, you know, I, I didn't have as big a bankroll. Like there was more doubts, you know. Like I wasn't as strong mentally, or like I, I had so much not I had no didn't have anxiety. I would have like mental game problems then, right? Like I would be 
I was young, you know, like new to money, whatever. Like I cared about what other people thought. So I had a blog. I used to update my blog every day. Uh, and as you know, with success comes a lot of hate, but I probably brought a lot of hate on myself too, because I was like moan about running bad or like, well, not moan about running bad. I would just like say what I thought. Like I was sad about running bad. Even if in the grand scheme of things, I was running good. I wasn't used to like, because I come from a cash game background. I wasn't used to just losing for a week. Like that just didn't really happen. Right. So I wasn't really prepared for that. So when I lost for a week and I had a blog, I would just tell people, look, I'm unhappy. Like I feel unlucky. I feel sad. I feel whatever. Um, so I wasn't really prepared for the variance. Like I remember very, very strongly. Uh, I played, well, this is like a few years down the line, but I played a 50K in Monte Carlo and I was chip lead. At this time, I was seen as, I was number one in the world online at this point, but I was seen as like a live fish because I had no results live. I bricked my first 20 EPTs, which is like 100K, quite a lot of money. Um, and people were oh, people weren't saying this, but in my mind, I heard this in my mind. Oh, he's, He's good online, but he can't do it live. Like I, I, in my mind, everyone thought that even though nobody would have even, no one even thinks that kind of thing. But in my mind, because I was blogging every tournament, I was bricking, I would go to Prague, brick, go to Berlin, brick, go to Malta, brick, go to Prague again, brick, go to Monaco, whatever, brick. So I was like, I want to be seen. I want the people to think I'm really good at live poker. Like for some reason, this was like a big goal. I want to be accepted as a live poker player. Um, so I would come back from a, from a stop and I'd be like, uh, I'd be like, oh, straight away to my blog. Oh my God, so unlucky, this guy, this guy, you know? But I was just saying what I thought, you know? And people, sometimes when you say the truth of what you think, people don't really like it. They see you as moaning, they see you as entitled or whatever. So most people don't write down what they actually think online. Because if, if, if you went onto Twitter now and just did a thread of all of your beliefs, all of the controversial opinions you had, you'd probably be canceled for one of the opinions. You know, you'd probably be seen as entitled. You'd probably be seen as arrogant. You'd probably be seen as whatever. So people kind of hold back what they think, but as like a 23 year old ex journalist who is now a poker player, I just wrote whatever I thought. So like, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm so unlucky. Whereas people are seeing that I've got to number one in the world through lots and lots and lots of luck, not through really skill, I don't, some skill, uh, but they, I, I had to run so, so good to get there. Uh, people have been playing tournaments for like 10 years and never get gotten there, even though they deserved it more than me. They have to read a blog of me saying that I'm unlucky. It's like, it's tough to read that, you know, like it would be, it's very tough to read that. It's like Michael Adamo saying he's very unlucky because he ran bad one month online or something, you know, it's like a similar thing. So, so I started to really have a weight on my shoulders of being, I wanted to be seen as good in live poker. And I wanted just the community to think I was a good live poker player. That was like my goal, which is like a ridiculous goal to have because it's, it's one, not in my control because it's live poker and two, it doesn't even matter, you know, like who cares what they think. Yeah. So for you, it sounds like online was all for you, all for your competitive drives and your motivation. But this live thing, it sounded like you were doing that for other people or to prove them right. So uh, what happened when you started the Ed Success Live? How did that make you feel relative to what you thought it was going to? Well, yeah, this is a big story in itself. But uh, yeah, so again, going back to school, I can't listen to a teacher, right, for an hour. Uh, going back to my job, I can't just do my job. I have to have poker on the side. Going back to poker, I have to play lots and lots of tables. So playing live poker for me is hell. Like sitting there playing so slow, like I need to be playing multiple tables. I can't just play one table. So for me, I hate it at this point. I'm miserable on all the stops. I think, and what am I doing with my life? I need to retire. I need to do something different. Uh, so I go to Vegas. I'm going to guess 2016, maybe 2015. And I go for a month and I think I, 
I probably cashed like two tournaments for like $2,000 over six weeks. And I'm like, every, everyone's winning. I'm, I'm blogging every day for six weeks and lost again, lost again. Oh my God, so unlucky. I'm thinking that everyone must think I'm a fish at this point. I've got so much like doubt about what other people think. I basically have to leave Vegas. I can't take it anymore. So it's it's a week before the main event. And I just, I just can't take the losing. I can't take the failure. I've never failed in my life through luck. Like I've just been so lucky in life. I'm like, have, I'm so like lucky at this point. I've just played cash game, got, uh, had poker as a hobby, got a 50K job, played cash games at work. My boss loved it. Uh, quit, quit to play poker professionally to do Supernova Elite, win 300K in tournaments. Like I'm the, literally one of the luckiest poker players at the time. But at this point, I feel like I'm the most unlucky poker player. So I have to leave Vegas. I just can't take watching other people win, having to blog that I'm losing every day. I just, I just can't do it. So I just jump on a flight and leave. But I've already bought into the main event. So I, I don't even think about that. But I've bought into the main event. I just leave. I have to get to London. Uh, so I go back to London. Uh, I go back home. I spend a week just like, going over some strategy stuff, just like play a session online. I think I have a good session online, like a Sunday, do well. And I have to fly back to Vegas the next day. Um, for some reason, I have no idea why, because I haven't really been playing high rollers. There's a 25K in area. The day I arrive, I'm jet lagged. I can't sleep. The main event is the next day, I think. So I play the one day 25K. Um, my biggest live score at this point is probably like 20K. Uh, I don't know, maybe more. Uh, and I win it for like, I get I get free handed with Timothy Adams and Igor Kurganov, I think, and they don't want to deal with me, which I which I I was pretty tilted about, but whatever. Uh, I win I win tournament. Uh, I play main event day one B the next day. I bag a huge stack, like two, massive stack, like top twenty stack. I play really. I feel great. I'm running well, obviously. The next day is like day one C of the main event, so I can't play. So I play another twenty five k area. I win this for like another four hundred fifty k. I play the main event, do do okay. And then there's the Bellagio Cup, which is like uh, the huge 10K at the end of the series. Uh, and I ended up winning this or chopping this for like, I guess like 500K. So I come back to Vegas and within 10 days, I've won 1.5 million. So I'm like, wow, like this is what I've been trying to do for the last two years. I've been trying to like have this live success. And then I start seeing like so many messages. I start getting so many messages, text messages. People are replying to my vlog. Twitter messages, oh my God, like, congratulations, oh, you're, you're, you're a sicko, what are all this kind of stuff. But I was playing the same strategy as I was for all the other tournaments, but I wasn't getting messages of people saying like, oh, I've seen you've bricked, you know, like 20 EPTs, are you okay? Do you want to chat? I wasn't getting any messages of support. I wasn't getting any messages of uh, consolation. I wasn't getting any messages of, uh, you know, sympathy. I wasn't getting people saying, oh, do you want to go coffee? Like, oh, I wasn't getting people like asking for coaching, you know, I wasn't getting people saying, oh, you're really good. I wasn't getting anything positive. And then I realized all these messages I was receiving after I won, I wasn't really grateful for them all. I actually took them quite negatively. I was like, almost, fuck you guys. You know, like, if you're not with me at my bad points, I don't want you at my good points kind of thing. Uh, so after this live success, I said, I'm not playing another live tournament. Fuck it. I'm going back online. So I think I didn't play another live tournament. I think I played one live tournament in the next one year, maybe two maximum, where really when you have live success, usually you play more and more and more stops. But I was like, fuck this. Like I've achieved what I want to achieve. I've shown you guys I can win here, even though it shows nothing winning free tournaments. Like it's just luck. But I was like, I've shown these guys, fuck this. I basically stopped blogging at the end of that year. And then I just sticked online after that. Um, so yeah, you said, how did the live, live success make me feel? It made me feel shit, to be honest. Like the money meant nothing. I, I didn't really feel any... I, I wasn't happy, you know, like it was a relief. 
it was a relief and it was like i've shown these people it wasn't like i've done this for myself or i've accomplished something you know this should be the best one week of my life you know at the time but i didn't feel like that i felt i felt sadness through it really like mm-hmm. uh, i felt empty i guess the feeling i would feel is empty i went for dinner with my two friends who i'd gone to dinner with every time i lost a tournament uh we would go we were like the losers dinner we'd go for dinner together uh and then when i won i stayed with the same guys i didn't go like party with the people who wanted to be around me now because i'm like the the running the best in vegas for a week i was like fuck these guys you know like that's not who i want around me uh so i completely isolated myself away from all all of these people because i I was sad i guess you know like empty yeah just shows how important it is to do things for the right reasons when you're doing things to validate yourself in other people's eyes even though it might feel like a big thing in the time, very often you're going to feel hollow. And for you, like that realization moment was almost like, fuck everyone else. Like, I don't care about their opinions. I'm not doing it for these people. I'm not doing it again. I'm not validating myself through uh, success in your eyes. I'm going to do, do it for me. So yeah, at that moment, when you had that success and you realized, wait a second, this is kind of hollow. Was that a kind of relief moment in itself that you could just drop that and go, right, I'm just doing things for myself now. And I'm not, I'm not worried about other people's opinions. Yes. So um, at, B- at Bitly, we had like a social media company uh, who were like posting the daily for us, you know, because they would post like pictures or whatever, like on our social media page. And I won these free tournaments and they made a post saying uh, the summer saver for pads. Like I was down like 30K before these tournaments and I was expecting, you know, they're going to make some big thing about me. And they, they called it the summer saver. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck are these guys on about the summer saver? We, we fired them the next day or whatever. I was like, how can they call it the summer saver? You know, they should be like, congratulate me, whatever. Yeah. Uh, so I, I was really tilted about that. I was tilted about everything. I guess, it, you know, maybe more entitlement, you know, like maybe just because everything's come so easy because everything's just, I've always just had the success out of luck. I, I guess I guess it's just, I felt entitled. Like this felt just normal to me. You know, I didn't really feel so lucky. I was like, this is just normal. This is how it should be. This is how the story should be written in the book, you know? So, so yeah, I mean, the ne- the next year or so is at the time, again, we're running Bitby. Bitby is a huge company at this point. We have, you know, over all our teams, we probably have like three, 400 guys. We have, you know, loads of guys working for us, lots of players. Like it's very active. Like my life, 15 hours a day is bitby, you know, like waking up, seeing everyone, talking to everyone. Like it's, I'm supposed to be this high stakes poker player, but at the time I'm spending at least 10 hours a day with bitby stuff, you know, all nonstop. Uh, it, we, we, it was me, European Elmerics. It was just us, right? Like we didn't, we didn't bring in like external teams or anything, you know, like you probably, we had one guy called Ray, like Mondo too, like from Newcastle, you, you, you'll know him, Adam, but we were like, it was like him and us, you know, he was one of our players. We didn't have, loads of guys working for us you you will remember there was just us there so at this time i didn't really even have time to be like a high stakes player i didn't have time to study or whatever i had to I had to run the company you know like i had to had to do this i had a lot of pride in this um there's so many different poker companies staking companies there's probably been thousands yeah thousands thousands of people have staked more than one person you know and i knew that they all went broke there's 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 probably like two stables which have been around for 10 plus years. So if there's a thousand stables and there's two left out of a thousand, then pro like for long term, you know, or like less than 10, right? There's less than 10 stables. That means, you know, 99.9% go broke or don't work out or it's impossible, let's say. So I was so determined for this not to go wrong that I put my whole effort from being a poker player into running the stable because I kind of achieved the number one online. I had the live success. 
you know, I had the money, like I didn't really need more money. So the next goal was basically to run the stable. I think like that was my, that was my major thing. Like that was the next challenge. The next task was basically to run the stable, you know, try to do things differently to how other stables did things similar to poker, you know, like have a strategy, which is different how other people had a strategy. So um, yeah, that's, that's what we, that's what I spent the next, I think 2016, well, we made the stable in like 2013 probably, but we were like big in like 2016 to 18, like massive, I would say. So I spent all my time then doing, doing that mostly. This podcast is brought to you by Poker Ambition, where me and Adam have created our coaching program, The Mechanics of Poker. After having reached high stakes poker ourselves, we tested out this philosophy on our CFP students, which saw them rise through the ranks and double their win rate. We then took the best knowledge of that CFP program and turned it into the mechanics of poker so you can have that high quality content without the long-term commitment and often hefty price that comes with a CFP program. Now I will be teaching you the technical side of how poker really works, how to think about the game and how to consistently get better. And Adam focuses on the mindset and performance skills you need to know in order to convert all that technical poker knowledge into more consistent profits at the table. Now this program is high level. It's made for professional poker players who have the ambition to break free from mid stakes and move up to high stakes poker. So if you're ambitious about your poker goals, go over to pokerambition.com for more information. And there you can also find a free one hour demo of everything that is inside the program. If you have any further questions, don't hesitate to reach out. But without further ado, let's get back to more goodness in this episode. Yeah. Yeah, Renny, I'm sure you can relate to running a stable and that taking time away from your grinding hours and maybe putting some of your own goals on hold whilst you uh, help other people pursue their goals. Yeah, but with me, it was with, uh, I think, at the max 19 players. And for me, that was... I mean, that, that was my new full-time job. But then again, I, I was I was also basically the only coach. So I was coaching 19 guys. And yeah, I mean, it, it also I guess it also depends a little bit on your personality. Reflecting on it, I was way too perfectionistic in terms of my coaching hours. I could have done it probably in half the hours, but that's not really how I am. But at some point, I was like, it was getting in the way of me being able to play poker. And the thought, I remember for me personally, the thought of we were busy expanding it, right? Because that's what you do. You get players in and then you start to expand. But I remember the thought of expanding with even more players. I was like, oh, oh no, we're not going to do that because I would just basically my life would be yeah, ruled by my students, right? And what I really like about why I started this is because I like poker strategy. But at some point, you can probably relate to this, Pat, you become more of a... Yeah, you're a poker player manager, basically. There's nothing to do anymore with being a coach in poker strategy because you're trying to manage people's careers, you know? There's always problems. You know, every week you have yeah. to deal with a student who's not doing so well. Uh, and at some point for me personally, I, I transitioned away from that. Now we're no longer doing the CFP. So also to create space for myself. Um, I know that at this moment, I don't think you're doing BitB anymore. What was the reason that you guys decided or that you maybe decide to to stop doing that? Uh, so we're, we're at our peak at this point, so we're at our biggest. Um, 
and then I make some decisions. I don't want to play on certain sites. Mm-hmm. Um, I stopped playing on certain sites. I'm not going to say the sites, whatever cause drama, but I stopped playing on certain sites from like a moral point of view. I didn't think the sites were doing the right thing at the time for the overall ecosystem. I thought it was going to cause massive dramas, massive scandal towards the industry. And I didn't want to put my rake towards that. Um, so for me, I stopped playing on one, one of the biggest sites out there. Uh, and now I had a moral thing internally was I was given hundreds of people money to play on the site, like with my, my money essentially to create the rate. That's like a whole player pool almost. Right. Um, however, the players I'm given the money to were not in a luxury position that I was to be able to just quit and take away like 50% of their expected income because they have mortgages to pay wives, wives, you know, their bankrolls are all very small, not very small, but you know, they don't have security for like the next years or whatever. So for me, I had to tell the, I just, I had to either put my foot down and say, look, I don't want you guys playing here either. Uh, which these people are now like family, best friends. Like I went on holiday with them three times a year. We used to do boot camps all the time before scoop, before W coop. I spent 10 hours a day on discord, speaking to every single one of them. I, I, I was very, very personally invested in them. So number one, I couldn't really tell them. I don't want you to play here and take away 50% of your money because what they're going to tell their wife, oh, we have a 50% pay cut this month. Two, I had two partners, right? European and Elmerics. I didn't want to impose my moral view on them and make them feel guilty because they were still playing on the sites and stuff and they didn't see, have a problem with them, which is completely fine. You know, uh, some of my best friends have different different political views to me. doesn't mean we're not friends anymore. So it doesn't mean they have wrong views. They should have a different view to me. So I didn't want to force my opinion on them and make them put this onto the players. So I had two options. I could either try to encourage everyone to stop playing or I remove myself and uh, stay in the community, stay coaching, stay blogging, stay active, but get no put no finance in and take no finance out. So it's quite a big decision because it's like a revenue stream of, you know, decent six figures to basically to zero, which is like a relatively big thing. Uh, but at the time, it just felt like the right thing for me to do because, you know, let's say, let's say there's a, uh, let's say there's a crypto coin. And if you invest in the crypto coin, it's going to make money for the next one year. It's going to go, you know, it's going to go up 20%, really good. But you know, the money that this coin's going to get is going to like cause some fraud or cause some, maybe they're building bombs or maybe whatever it may be. I wouldn't invest in the coin, you know, just because I'm going to turn my 100K into 120K because they, my 20K is going to contribute, my, my money, which they use initially to bankroll or whatever, is going to initially bankroll rockets or missiles or drugs or whatever it may be. So I saw it the same as that. I didn't believe morally in, in some of the sites or whatever. So I didn't want to give my money towards them. And by staking hundreds of players or whatever on the sites, I'm putting lots and lots and lots and lots of money in there, you know? So I said, I'd rather make, I'm not playing white knight or anything here, but I, I would basically make less money myself, still have the enjoyment of being in the community, still have the enjoyment of helping people out, still have the enjoyment of being friends with people, but just not contributing to it from that point of view, because it makes me easier to sleep at night. Uh, so yeah, that was basically the decision. It's obviously, we had the company for like eight years, probably at this point. Um, 
it was my life, you know. Uh, I'd sacrificed playing poker to basically, like I played maybe just Sundays, maybe a Tuesday, you know, series to run BitB every day. Like that was my life. Um, I went, I was like unhealthily, like I wasn't like eating well, looking after my mind well, like my whole focus was on BitB. Anyone who's been in BitB will know, like I was by far the most active guy, even more than any of the players, any of the coaches, any anyone, like I was so, so, so active. It was my life. So it was a big, big decision. Um, I didn't take it lightly, um, but I, I had to do it at the time, I think. Uh, and also I'm a party poker ambassador. So let's just say that I, fell out of party. Let's say I find out party poker, like, I hope this is not a cut in a, in a bad way, but let's say I find out party poker have uh, bots at high stakes who are planted. Uh, let's just say, say that's the case. Uh, and let's say I, I, I want to leave party poker. Then what happens in the future? Do I tell all the players they have to leave party poker too? You know, like it's, a, I, and I have the same, the same question happening. And I realized that in the future, I'm going to have these same questions about all sites, and I'm going to have these own moral issues and all stuff. That if it, if I didn't leave then when I left, I would have to leave sometime in the future because the same problem would come up. Um, so yeah, I mean, people may disagree and may think that you know people would play anyway, even if it's my money or not. But I don't think that's a way to to do things. I mean, in the end, it's what's most important for you, right? You mentioned what makes you sleep well. That's the best decision. Uh, you mentioned something about uh, when you were doing Bit B, uh, that you were trying to do things different than from your competitors, right? You mentioned there's thousands of people who at least staked, you know, more than one one player. What were some of the things that you think with Bit B uh, got you guys ahead of the curve compared to your competitors? Well, first of all, uh, time. So you know, if um. Let's say let's say you get offered a job as an intern, right, uh, mm -hmm. in a company like a Wall Street company. You often work for for no hourly. Like you work because you work now because you don't get a good hourly, but in the future your hourly is going to be high because you've done this internship. You know, um, so we did a lot of coaching initially, which was a lot of hours, and our hours were very expensive or would be very expensive to other stables because we were like three of the top ten online players at the time, right? So like let's just say my dad made a stable and he wanted to hire the three of us to be the, the lead coaches for the stable, the stable would never be profitable because he'd be paying us more money than the players would be making. But we made this devotion of time initially as high stakes players to get people to a level or to get a reputation. Like we had a good brand, like Bitby was a good brand because we were the coaches. But for the first, you know, six months, one year, whatever, our hourly was probably, you know, less than a dollar because so much time, meetings, we make mistakes, whatever. So the first thing is I think a stable... It's very tough for a stable to be successful because if you run the stable, like let's just say a random guy who doesn't play poker or isn't a high stakes player, how can he critique what levels the player should be playing at? Because especially in tournaments where there's so much variance, how can he say this guy's a 109 player, this guy's a $55 player, this is a guy's a $22 player? So the first thing we did was devote our time to it, knowing that our hourly is really bad now, it'll probably be better in the future. And I think most stables will fail because the people making the decisions of the game selection and whatever is actually, they just don't know, right? They're just not qualified to know. Uh, so that was the first thing. The second thing is we became very stat orientated. So again, 2015, 16, 14, uh, there wasn't really too much emphasis on solvers and hoods and stuff like this. People just kind of played, give people money and played. We had basically every single stat in possible in PT4 and we made ranking systems for them. So like 
we had green, red, and yellow. Yellow meant it's okay. Green means really well performing and red means really low. So just for an example, fold the fork. Well, let's say RFI on the button. Let's say our strategy we wanted them to play was 60% RFI on the button. That would be green plus. Uh, yellow would be 50% to 60. So that'd be like acceptable. And then anything under 50 would be seen as unsuccessful, uh, like uh, unsatisfactory. And everyone's goal in the stable was to get all of their stats green. And we would give them their stats updated every week or month with like a review of, okay, this is what you need to improve for the next month. So we tried to get the whole stable to basically play the same strategy of getting the stats in the same way. Um, so that was like a main thing we did. And then we had tiers. So we had tiers from 10 to one. So tier one was the highest stick players. Tier 10 was the lowest stick players. And if you started in tier 10, you had a very clear path of how you moved up stakes. It wasn't on profit. It was on one volume. You needed to put volume in. Uh, and two, you needed your stats to be at a certain level. And if you had good stats, we believed in you. We moved people up who were losers, like from tier 10 to tier seven. But we also moved players down who were winning at tier one to tier four because we thought their strategy is not sustainable. And we know there's going to be a downswing happening. Whereas this guy who's winning, say, 200k in tier one there's no other stable in the world who would drop him or maybe just quit him from the stake because we don't believe in him you know we don't believe we have our method we believe in our method and we believe in the data and it doesn't matter if you've won 500k a million whatever we will drop you if we don't believe in it or we don't see you doing what we want you to do whereas the other stables probably didn't drop people at those levels you know uh and it's a tough conversation because these people are your friends and by luck we just don't we don't believe in you. You know, it's tough to tell someone that you've taken on holiday that's made you hundreds of thousands of dollars to just look them in the eye and say, look, I don't believe in you. I don't think you can do this. But we made lots of very, very difficult decisions, uh, very, very difficult decisions. And there's players who didn't accept them and took them personally. And that's fine. I get it. Um, but we thought we were doing them the best thing because if they started to lose and they were in big makeup, then what happens? You know, like. Yeah they're going to, it's going to destroy their life, you know? So we were doing it for them, but they thought we were doing it. They thought we were doing something personal, whatever it meant. Uh, we would meet people three times a year and that would be seen as a cost to most stables. Oh, can we really take 60 people away on holiday? Can we take 20 people away on holiday? It's expensive to go to Barcelona with 30 people, right? But we would meet people and even if they were a good poker player or even if they'd been winning, even if they had good stats, if we had a bad impression on them, we would just drop them, which sounds quite brutal. It sounds quite brutal, but we just didn't, we, we were very much people, 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 persons, person, people. I'm not sure how you say it. Uh, we were very much people, people, people. And uh, if we had a bad gut instinct, we would just, we, we would cut people uh, and we would tell them truthfully, you know, like, we don't think this is the best place for you. And we never did anything against people. It was always in their best interest. If we didn't think it was going to work out, it's not good for them, you know? Uh, and over time, we probably had six, 600 players, maybe more. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe over a thousand. I'm not sure. But after a month, like we would take people in quite a lot and just just drop them after a month. Say, okay, he's lost 10K. It's fine. This guy's not going to be our guy because they have to interact well in the community. They have to do their homeworks, whatever it may be. If there's any red flags, then we just got rid of people. Yeah, it's fine. Um, we had lots of good coaches. We overpaid for coaches. Again, like our coaching team was uh, Michael Adamo, uh, Stefan Sontheimer, Fido Holtz, uh, Graf Teckel, uh, Sick One. Like we had the best, the best players in the world, you know. We invested in the best mental game coaches. We had Adam, we had Elliot, 
we had James, you know, we had everyone. Like, we wouldn't just get one guy. We knew that one mental game coach may be good for one person, but what if someone else needs somebody else? So we understood people's personalities. This guy will do really well with him because they're quite similar. So we we hired as many people as possible. Um, we just did, every, we tried to just, to do as much as possible, really. Think of every angle, you know, every single angle. Um, there's probably more I just, that I'm not thinking about, but yeah. Uh, yeah, we used to also be risky. So I would just stream all my sessions to like people who've only been in the stable for like a month or two months who could just be restreaming my session to other people, you know? Like we, we put a lot of trust in people, you know, like, um, yeah. Did you, you, you did coaching yourself as well, right? For players? Or were you more on the business side of things? Uh, no, me, European, and Elmerix would coach the most. So we would, I think every coach would coach once a month. So like, uh, like Graf Deco would coach once a month, like Sikwon would coach once a month. I, maybe there's this guy, a Dutch guy, uh, high stakes cash game guy. Not Pims. Pims's brother, Poker Kluge? Kluge, yeah. Poker Kluge, do you know, mm -hmm. you know this guy? Like we would identify people like this who played very different and we would invite them in to try to be a coach. Like Kluka came in and did a couple of sessions on, he was playing high stakes sit and goes at the time. Yeah, I think. yeah, I remember and that. And we, I think he was playing like 5k sit and goes. So we got him to come in and do like 20 big blinds, button versus uh, small blind because we weren't experts. So we would do a lot of like overall hand histories. So we would kind of try to ingrain our overall identity into the players. And then we'd get specific coaches for spe uh, specific stuff. So maybe we'd say to Graffy, okay, for this month, we want you to do out of position CBEM. So he would go away for a month, make a really detailed presentation, all this kind of stuff. We'd have Romeo Pro, who was the best coach in the world probably at the time. He would do a lot of stuff on CBEM versus the big blind. You know, we'd have uh, Michael Adamo, who would be doing bluffs, Peter Holtz, who would be doing, you know, maybe like live poker stuff, whatever it may be. Stefan Sontheimer, who would explain the whole like, idea of when to bet big, when to bet small from a theory point of view, because we knew he was really good at that. So we would do lots and lots of ha overall hand histories. And we would maybe be we would maybe have been seen as not as good coaches as the other guys, but it was done in it was done in this uh systematic way on purpose. So we would give an overall strategy between me, Sam and Tommy. So we would repeat the same buzzwords, repeat the same strategies. This is repeat the same concepts over and over. And then we'd have all of these individual coaches going in on like individual topics, which they were very, very much uh, experts in. So Adam would come in and do like something on what he was an expert in. You know, James would come and do what he was an expert in. We'd have them doing the different kind of seminars, you know? So uh, there was a lot of content and a lot of different content, I think. Uh, I personally had to stop going to watch these sessions, which is crazy. Like I had so much available resources of getting better, but I this was at the period of time where I changed my strategy from what I wanted to do to what other people wanted to play. So it was very dangerous for me to go into a coaching session with say, uh, Graf Teckel or go into a coaching session with somebody else who played a completely different style to me. Cause what I find myself doing is I would watch Graffy's session. It would motivate me so much. Oh, wow. This is amazing. He's told me this trick. He's told me that trick. I'd go into a session and I would try to become Graf Teckel rather than pads. And I would be a very, very bad version of Graf Teckel rather than trying to be the best version, a better version of myself. So maybe Graffy wants to, uh, there was this thing in Bitby we used to, um, if you were ever out of position to the player, uh, to your direct left, we would check range because his range is like slightly stronger than your range. Uh, where like if I raise under the gun and you flat the button, my range is like considerably stronger than your range on the button because you have lots of weakish hands. But if I raise MP and you flat 
one position along, like MP1 or MP2, you basically don't have the weak hands like King 10 offsuit and Queen 9 suited and stuff. You, you're very much condensed around like a slightly stronger range than mine. Even though you don't have the nut advantage, you have a stronger range, really. So we used to play in bit B, for example, there would be, okay, we're going to play range checks because Graffy would do a session. I'm not saying it's Graffy. Someone would do a session on, or maybe Stefan Sondheimer would do a session on, okay, we're going to range check here because it makes sense from a theoretical point of view. But I was doing stuff like just potting the flop and people were under defending and I was doing some cool little tricks myself, whatever, maybe betting really small on the flop because people used to raise in position with top pair versus small bets. And then I would overbet the turn after. I, I would just have my own plan, right? But after I watched the session from these guys, I would start range checking. I would just find myself, oh, like I would hear buzzwords, range check or like this or that. And it was really, really harming my game, even though it was amazing theoretical knowledge, even though this was the way to play like against computers or against an overall population if you want to make a solid strategy for me that wasn't that wasn't right for me you know so i i quickly became worse a worse player than these coaches like i, I think when graffy and these guys came in i was a really high level and then i think when they came in they all became better than me uh i have never really said this stuff publicly before. i don't really care but i i, I started to become like a bad vi- they became better poker players than me because I was a bad version of Graffy. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't understand the whole strategy as well as he did because he'd spent a month working out the strategy. I'd listened to a one hour, I'd listened to a one hour coaching session. So I became a bad version of Graffy without opposition C button. I became a bad version of Romeo Pro with C button versus the big blind. I became a bad version of whatever Feudal Holtz taught. I became a bad version of Stefan Sondheimer's strategy and something else. So I just became a bad version of all these coaches which is really, really detrimental to my play, you know? And uh, I struggled I struggled for some time because of this. So I had to stop going to the coaching sessions. I, I realized what was going on and I had to stop going to these sessions and just, uh, yeah, because it was, in reality, the worst thing which could have happened to me was to get these seven amazing best poker players in the world to improve my game, you know? So nowadays, are there still, I'm sure there's a couple things that stick with you, right? What you... Like, obviously, trying to copy them, as you explained, you should stay true to your own strengths. Nowadays, if you look at your strategy, your play from Pats, Big Pot Pats strategy, you know, your main strength. But I'm sure there's a couple of things, right, that you now still use in your strategy that you taught from these other players, but you gave it the right place. Or is it completely, oh, completely yeah. Pats? No, completely. No, no, completely. These guys, these, these guys are completely why I understand poker for sure like they they would they would say a theoretical concept and I, and I would I would like stuff they, they would give me so many ideas to explore you know like they would say something then and that would completely still stick with me now you know like 100% like that like stuff yeah I can't think of exact examples but like they, they have such a huge influence on my career for sure like they just helped me they pushed me in directions to explore and to make my strategy for sure and also like they taught me how everyone else is thinking too, you know, it's like, I know that this is how everyone else is thinking. Okay. Well, this is how they're, this is what they're used to. This is what they're used to facing. This is what their game plan is. What can I do as a game plan, which they're not used to? Like, what can I do as a game plan, which might make them like, I know they're amazing at their strategy. Why would I want to play their strategy against them? You know, yeah. like if they, if they want to like half pot C bet, uh, in free bet pots, for example, and they, they know exactly how it works. Like, why would I do this when they know their strategy better than me? Why not try to make something with myself, which has got a similar EV anyway, in terms of theory. If I put my strategy into a solver and their strategy into a solver, 
Like the EVs are going to be so similar anyway. However, they're going to play their strategy a lot better than I can play their strategy. But my strategy, they don't ever play because it's not worth them studying this strategy because no one else plays it, you know? And I'm not saying like completely ridiculous things here. I'm just talking about small tweaks. So like, you know, like I said, playing a more polarized strategy is what, like if, if, I, if I was recommending someone out there now, like a tournament player, I would say try to change your strategy to a stylistic approach, which supports bigger, more polarized bets because one, people are very poor against playing them on the flop. But two, the node of check, check, flop, people play the turn really poorly against. And also people play the the, the node of, you know, bet 25% or bet 30% on the flop. People play really well against that because there's so many courses, there's so many uh, seminars, there's so many Discord groups where people are going over these kind of things, you know, where everyone's pretty good at that now. In 2017, when Solvers came out, everyone was terrible against range C-bets. No one... No one knew what to do. Everyone was overfolded. Nobody was check raising. Like the average check raise in Bitby was, I think, like four percent, and we wanted it to be like fifteen percent or something. Like people were not check raising. Now people know about you know check raising bottom pair for some protection when you unblock the overcards, all that kind of stuff. Like no one knew any. No one knew anything like this. You know, like there, there was no that none of that kind of stuff. But now everyone mostly knows. So you're a. It's, it sounds like you're a big advocate of of using strategies that the rest of the population isn't using, which, you know, as you as you know, it's still sort of GTO approved. Uh, but then you're putting people in a situation that they're not familiar with, but you are the person who is familiar with that spot. So you will make better decisions. And in the end, better decisions lead to more EV. For sure. For sure. And I, I think, I, I think I just want to emphasize, I'm not talking about completely crazy things here. Like I'm, I'm talking about things which are just like deviations but i'm not saying let's start playing you know chess instead of poker i mean like just small small deviations and also i think one of the strongest ways to get this is actually playing against players who put you into situations which you don't know what to do and this can often be like a fish so like a fish could do something against you maybe he like min bets the turn for example after flops check check and you're like fuck what do i do here and then you realize wow this fish has actually made me my eyes open to a part of the game tree, which I didn't realize before, you know? So I think always been very observant and players who put you into tough spots, try to say, well, why does he put me into a tough spot? So you'll know this guy, uh, Tian de Mulder, uh, Dutch guy. Yeah, we actually coach him in our CFP in the beginning. Okay, okay, great. Well, I, I know him quite well, very talented player. Like when I say I coach him, I mean, it was it was a guaranteed success. Yeah, well, he came to MTTs not that long ago, like uh, to high stakes at least. He showed up and he had like a really good, like, I think six months, one year. I'm not sure. Like something, some, I don't know exactly the time frame when he showed up, whatever, but he showed up and he was doing really well because, and the stuff which he was doing really well, I was struggling against, whether it be, he was doing lots of triple barreling. He was doing lots of like overbetting the turn, uh, just, just different stuff. Right. So he, he was doing stuff really good. And I was like, well, I'm really struggling against this. So if I'm really struggling against this, probably everyone else is well, not everyone else, but probably other people are struggling against this too. So why do I not, uh, I don't want to imitate his strategy, but why do I not, if this strategy is really, I, I'm tough against, maybe this is a better strategy to use than you know, the really tight reg who just bets really small on the flop against me, checks the turn and bets, you know, two thirds on the river, you know, like I never feel threatened. I never feel like I'm sweating in these kind of pots. But when I'm against Tian de Mulder, I was making bad calls on the river 
because his overall strategy was putting me into an uncomfortable position where on the river I was guessing, I was letting my, my emotions take control because I didn't know the theoretical response. Because when you know the theoretical response, you don't really play emotionally, right? Because you know, okay, yeah, he bets this, I call this, I check raise this part of my range. It's like, it's okay. But when someone starts putting you into an uncomfortable situation, you're like, you often act out of emotion rather than logic, I think. And Tian de Mulder definitely, I think Michael Adamo is the same. He does things which people really, really struggle against. And I think, yeah, so Tian de Mulder, I think is a, I wouldn't say a big influence on how I play, but like, I, I definitely think I, I saw something from him that was like, okay, this guy's saying, fuck it. I'm not going to play how everyone else plays in the pool. I'm going to play differently. And I think that gave me a lot of confidence. Okay, I'm going to, maybe I, I, I should maybe go back that to my roots that way too, you know? Um, so, so yeah, shout, shout out to Tim DeMolde. I really, I really like him as a, as a player. I'm sure he's a good guy too. I just never met him before. Like I said, pure, pure talent, I would say. I remember when he, when he came in. Also, I would say everything that I, I remember, everything that I explained to him, you have some students that are always looking for what might be wrong or what could go wrong. But I remember with Tino, you would say something. He would say, okay, that worked. Bomb. Relentlessly execute. He had no problem, especially, you know, towards towards the aggressive side. He, he definitely liked to put people to the test. Mm -hmm. um, what, in your opinion, like you, you have a lot of uh, coaching experience. What, in your opinion makes uh, uh, a student still fail. For example, everyone at BB got the same type of coaching, right? They got the same content, but still some players did make it and other players didn't. What do you think uh, are some of the reasons why some of your students at BB didn't make it and other people did rise through the ranks? So I would say one aggression, the aggressive players always do better. Like aggression just works in poker at every level, every game. Like. GTO in itself is very aggressive. It's lots of check raise and lots of C bet and lots of over betting, like not being able, not being afraid to bust tournaments. Like you have to pull the trigger. You have to put people into those situations. Most people are uncomfortable against aggression. Even aggressive players are uncomfortable facing aggression. It's like if you're the most aggressive player in the world, but you face a free X pot river shove, you're like fuck. Like this is this is uncomfortable, you know. So like you need to be aggressive, and only aggression will ever succeed. There's no there's no really successful poker players in the world who are not aggressive. So you need to be naturally aggressive. You need to want to bluff. You need to want to, you need to want to, to put people into tough situations. You need to want to find those nodes. Um, so that's the first thing. Aggression is just so key. If a guy is scared to pull bluffs, uh, if a guy is scared to use big sizes, they, they just will not succeed. I'm pretty sure of that. So that, that's, that's number one. Uh, number two is not being afraid to look stupid in front of other people. Uh, a lot of people don't post hand histories of their big bluffs or their big aggression. Uh, they, they may play like a hundred hands in this, they may mark 50 hands in a session and then they'll go through their hands and be like, oh, like don't really want to post this one because it could be terrible. Or like, maybe I lose, like maybe this bet on the river loses 20 big blinds or maybe this call on the river loses whatever. But being bold enough and brave enough to not really give a fuck about what other people think about you is a huge thing. Um, I think those are the two main things about people coming through. Uh, I think free is like being a, maybe being a, well, free is the main thing is about volume. I, I, I'm strongly, strongly think the biggest skill you can ever have in poker is volume. And I realized this very, very, very early. Um, you know, you can be the best poker player in the stable, but if you play four tables, uh, then it doesn't really matter, right? Because you're not making as much, if, if you have a 25% or if you have a 20% ROI and you play four tables, 
but I have a 10% ROI. So you are like technically twice as good a player as me, but I play 12 tables. I'm a better poker player than you are. Just like it's fact, right? Like poker player, the, the how we how we uh, rank poker is like who makes the most money, right? It's not like who, you know, like jokes off over the sim getting it right the best. Or it's not who, you know, would get a test right. We used to do tests in BitB. So we used to do tests where we do 30 questions and you have to like do a whole thing. And we used to mark people. Like the best poker player in BitB wasn't the guy who got 30 out of 30. The best poker player in BitB is the guy who makes the most money, right? So like the most... The, you have two thing, two metrics of money in poker is one ROI or win rate in cash and two is volume. So you need to combine them both. If you can only play good poker one day a week, it doesn't matter. The guy who plays six days a week or whatever, he's going to be, he is a better poker player than you. It doesn't matter if you, do, if you get a better score on DTO. It doesn't matter if you get less EV errors when you run Odin or whatever the software. It doesn't matter, right? So very, very important is that you understand and not just that you understand that volume is important, but you actively try to work on it. So like I've been playing poker 17 years now. I can play 25 tables like pretty comfortably. Like, but I can't, I didn't just one day play 25 tables, you know, like I used to play one table and then I realized, okay, I need to play two tables, then four, then six, then eight, and then 12 and then whatever. And, uh, and then you add it up and you add it up and you add it up. And then it, things start to become easier as you train it. You know, you don't just go to the gym one day and just start like lifting the heaviest weight or you don't just go to the gym and do like 60 reps the first day. You know, you probably go to the gym the first time on January the 1st after you haven't gone to the gym for 11 months or whatever and you start uh, you start doing six reps, you know, of a low weight. And then the next day you go to the gym, maybe you do like eight reps uh, and then maybe the next day you do like 12 and then you build it up, right? And then by November you've grinded it up and now uh like adam will say to be successful in the gym you need to have you know consistency you need to have good reps you need to be able to lift good weight whatever but you can't just do that on january the first right you need to build it up so for volume identifying okay i need to play good volume let's just load loads of tables up let's copy pads this is not going to work you need to see it as as you need to see volume as a skill you need to train volume the same way that you train c betting against the big blind but to me the way that most people failed in BitB and other stables is they spend 95% of the time focusing on the strategy side, which is making small amounts of difference of EV, maybe changing the ROI from 10% to 10.1%. When really to get that extra 1.1%, what you have to do is add another, you add another table and you've got an extra 2.5%, you know, like why most people don't see it that way, but to win to win in poker, you need to win money. And it doesn't matter if it comes from a strategy or volume, whatever it may be. You need to, it, just, it, this, it all works out the same way, you know? Yeah, I, I completely understand with me. Obviously, the adding the tables, like your, the, the game that you can bring to the table, if you add tables, should still be sufficient that it doesn't drop your ROI per that table, right? It's like a sweet spot that you have to find. But indeed, I understand what you mean. You have to, it's a skill to try to improve playing more tables. That's what you're saying, right? For sure. And I, I never really see it being spoke about too much. Like, oh, like, what did you work on this month? I used to, if you ask someone in Bitby, what did you work on this month? Like, oh, I worked on opposition C button, which they probably worked on the other months as well. Uh, I worked on free bet pots. I worked on my free flop ranges. Okay, cool. But what, what, you didn't work on like trying to play more tables? Like, surely, you know, if you play six tables now and then your goal is in 12 months to play 12 tables, that's double your win rate. Is working on opposition C button going to double your ROI? I don't think so, you know? Like, I'm pretty sure that if you only have to focus on one thing, it's definitely better to focus on the volume rather than the strategy. Like, even if your strategy deteriorates from, say, 
a 10% winner to a 7.5% winner. So you lose 25% of your win rate because you get lazy, sloppy, whatever, but you double your volume. Like you're a better poker player than you were 12 months ago, even if some of the guys ran 5,000 DTO sims or whatever, yeah. watched a hundred training videos. It doesn't matter. Like you need whoever makes the most money at the end of the year, whoever has the best graph is the better poker player. Like that's just how it is. Yeah, I guess it also depends on the, where you are in your in your poker career. Like say, for example, in the beginning, spend a bit more time on improving your strategy. And once your strategy is solid, okay, now to increase your winnings, you should try to add more tables. Uh, yeah, but then again, I think at the early parts of your career, uh, the most important thing is to play reps to start seeing how other people think. I think you need to see, like the reason why I I think you need to like get into situations, see what population are doing in as many spots as possible. You know, like if anything, at the early part of your career, being a being an, an observant loser is more important than being a studied winner. I think at the start of your career, like understanding what other people do is so crucial to, especially in tournaments, especially in tournaments and cash games. I understand, especially in high stakes cash games and mid stakes cash games, etc. But in low stakes and mid stakes tournaments, it's all about being observant, seeing what other people do, seeing, you know, when, seeing when people show down certain lines, seeing when people use certain sizes, being observant, like really focusing on those kind of things, I think is important. And to do that, you need to put in volume, right? You need to play, you need to play and play and play and then go over the hand histories. And then maybe you have more, when you go through your database, you have twice as many river spots, right? Mm -hmm. So it's quite tough to get sample sizes in. It's very tough. To, like if you look at some sample sizes in, uh, on huds like maybe turn check raising for example like if you go through your PT, if you played a hundred thousand hands and you go through how many times someone's check raised a turn it may it may happen less than 20 times like really like it it, it like in, in in the note of check check flop check turn it just doesn't happen because you, people see better flop so much and then people just throw up the turn so much and people just don't check raise whatever it's so like you just don't get that sample you know so you need to you need to really, really play a lot to be observant a lot and to start thinking about different strategies and to think, okay, well, what's my game plan going to be, right? Like I need to build a game plan. Like I can study. Sure. I can just go and open up PS solver and just study. But like, where, where, where do I start from? What, what sizes do I put into the solver? Where's my ideas coming from? Where's my creativity coming from? You know, you need to, you need to have a base. You need to have this like observant thing where you're like, writing down things, you know, I, I really like saving hand histories where you see something from somebody. So like someone does something and then you get an idea, you know, you get this idea and you're like, wow, this may be a thing, but I'm not sure it's a thing. So I save it. Then like, I'll send it to European or whoever afterwards. I'm like, what do you think about this? And then get some feedback on it. And then now you suddenly have a thing, right? So you have a thing, you put it in a solver. Is the thing a thing, you know, like, does it make some sense? Like, how does it look like based on this? How does it look like based on that? But to have a thing, you need to see the thing first. You need to be observant. If you just, I think a lot of people just start and they focus so much on strategy and not on volume. And I think 95% of where I play, what I play comes from just previous playing and saving hand histories and like making a strategy based on like, maybe I see somebody else do something, you know? Maybe you see like a Russian guy uh, lead the flop, for example, from the big blind. Uh, so he leads, like um, right now in MTTs, the small blind in a multi-way pot leads a lot. So like, let's say cutoff opens, small blind calls, big blind calls. The small blind theoretically leads a lot because he knocks out the big blind. So like, let's say it's like a queen high board. The small blind may lead to very small to just knock out the big blinds, like 80% of his range. So like you work together, like soft colluding. 
But like you have to study a lot to see that, right? But if you see someone yourself do that, like let's say you see a Russian guy do that, oh, that's an idea. Like, why is he doing that? Save the hand industry. Now you have a thing. Ask a European, oh, I see this Russian guy doing this. Do you think it's good? Like, or maybe you even send him, oh, this guy has no clue what he's doing. And then maybe Europeans like, oh, actually it makes some sense. And then you put it in the solver and it makes some sense, right? But if I just started not playing poker, the volume, and I just opened up uh, some solver, I need to actually put in the, to allow the small blind to have leads. I need to put in all the different stuff. And uh, yeah, I just think playing is just so underrated, like so, so underrated. And uh, yeah. Yeah. And then mainly playing with the curious mind to try to see how can I get better as well, right? From other players, spots that other players put me in. I think it's important. It's still sort of quality volume. You're playing to learn to get better at the game. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 100%. I mean, if, if you ask me tomorrow, uh, I've got one hour. to. St I've got three hours to study uh, next, next week because I'm at university. How can I spend these three hours to get better at poker? Uh, what would you, what, well, what, what would you, what would you say? You have a tournament player. He says, I only have three hours next week. I want to get better. I want to get better. He's like a mid sticks player. He's a winner. You only have three hours to dedicate to poker next week. What would you, what would you, what would you tell him to, to spend these, these three hours on? I would probably say go, if he has three hours, I don't know, look at footage of someone who's really good playing basically. I have a very similar, what I would do is I would say, okay, there's a 10 K on GG next week, uh, on Sunday. You, what you're going to do is you're going to open up every table on your other screen. You're going to open up Camtasia and you're going to record all 10 tables, which are running in GG's 10 K. And you're going to record one hour of this footage. So you're going to record one hour of this footage. When you have your three hours, you're going to open up the footage. And what you're going to do is you're not going to try to make your own strategy because these guys are better than you. You don't have the time to make your own strategy. You're going to watch all of these tables. Whenever anyone does something, which you wouldn't have done yourself, you're going to say, is it, is, is, why is he doing this? Because these players are better than you because they're playing high stakes. They've studied for years, whatever. See what they do. See what they do. Try to not necessarily like imitate or replicate, but maybe you get some ideas and then maybe you can build on from there, you know? Um, but for, I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think probably... I mean, I have a guy who does it for me, but I don't think probably, I think nobody really records, like they, they watch final tables, right? They watch final table reviews on YouTube. Like that's the thing everyone does. But like, sure, it's completely different to an overall strategy because the final table is so unique. There's so much ICM. There's like so many different mixed stack sizes going on or whatever. To me, it's so much more valuable to watch the 12 tables of just chippy V stuff, watch free bit pots. You could even say, I want to work on free bit pots next week because I don't know what I'm doing. Okay, well, do you start from scratch with free bit pots? Or do you just go through this footage and just only watch free bit pots? See what people do in free bit pots, you know? See what sizes they use. See why, you know, like see showdowns. Even if you don't see showdowns, it doesn't matter. You're seeing what sizes they use. Okay, this guy bets 25% on A side boards. Okay, well, maybe there's a thing, Michael, Ad well, it's not Michael Adama, it's like a thing which is like a common concept of, uh, say you raise, I free bet, you call, and the board's ace high. In there's some sizing schemes where you where out of position, you may bet like 20% flop, 20% turn, 20% river, mm -hmm. because you have like kind of kings and queens, which you want to value bet against their sevens and eights and nines, and uh, you want to value bet your ace high, your ace x, but you have a lot more like you may have a lot of like ace deuce to ace five, which you want to put a little bit of money in, but you don't really want to put in like three big streets of value, but 
probably someone studying poker for the first time or not for the first time, but like just trying to get ideas, they're probably not going to think themselves of a size and scheme of, you know, like let's bet 20% flop, 20% turn, 20% river, something like this, you know? But if you watch Michael Adamo do it, oh, I have an idea here. This is quite cool. This is a concept. And now it starts making you think about equity. It starts to make you think about range versus range. It starts opening different doors, different directions. It starts making you think of poker in a certain way. Whereas when you have a blank sheet, it's very difficult to come from, from there, you know? Um, so, so yeah, there's, 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 that, that's why, that's, that's what I recommend with, with, with people who wouldn't have enough time. What I think people do is they open up YouTube, they watch an hour of a final table and they start getting bad ideas actually, because they start getting ideas of, oh, well, this is the sizing we should use in these pots. And in, in, in ICM, you never bet big. You always bet small because the, if you bet small, you're basically betting bigger anyway, because half pot basically means pot, third pot means half pot, 20% pot means third pot. It's like, that's kind of because the chips are worth more. So you may get even wrong ideas from watching final tables. Ah, oh, I see Lena, he bets 20% on this board. This is what must be good. But no, the big blind has to fold more because it's ICM. Whereas really to make the hands indifferent, which Lena's trying to make indifferent, you may need to bet 80%. You may need to bet 90% in a chippy V situation. So I think a lot of people actually get worse from watching footage because they're watching the wrong footage. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but that's... No, it makes a lot of sense. And I remember also throughout my career, I learned a lot from what you said, playing versus other players, but also watching other players. Let's say, I remember, especially when Solvers first came out and, you know, I was a bit like, ah, Solvers, blah, blah, blah. And I knew also some other players that were like, ah, Solvers. But if you play against a lot of guys who use a lot of Solvers and you indeed play against them and you pick up on things, hey, that actually makes a lot of sense. You're sort of indirectly also using a Solver because you're looking at what other players are doing, like, hey, that makes a lot of sense. And in the end, your, your strategy is actually solver-proof, even though you didn't even touch the solver. But because you're playing against other players or using them and putting them in your tough spots, and you're like, hey, I'm going to do that as well because I understand it, you're still sort of playing GTO, even though you never touched the solver. Yeah. So, 100%, 100%. reflecting on, uh, on your big career in both coaching, playing, I mean, it's an ongoing career. What so far has been the most important thing that poker has taught you, you would say, this this journey of yours? Tell me. Um, I guess, well, first of all, to do things for yourself, not for others. You know, like I said, a lot of these struggles or mental struggles was always about trying to appease other people, to try to get other people to want to see that I'm a winner in live poker, to get other people to say, oh, to be happy that I'm number one. You should be get to number one because you're happy for yourself, not because it makes somebody else content, you know? Uh, similar with your strategy, right? I was scared to play my strategy because maybe GraphTechL, maybe European, maybe other people, they were like, oh, well, that's not how I play, so it's a bad strategy, right? But make your thing for you, not for other people. Like every single thing I do, I don't have a blog. I don't have to like try to show off that way or anything anymore, try to get people to be approved of what I do. You know, I do everything. As long as I think it's good and I review it afterwards and I'm happy, I think that's why I, that's why I do things now, you know, 100% just for myself. So that's the main thing it's taught me. Um, and, you know, you had to learn, had to learn the hard way, you know, for, you know, losing, you know, you lose lots of money just normally in poker, you, uh, you have people doubting you, you have hate, you have all this kind of stuff, you know, it's quite a lot to take on. I'm, again, not complaining. It's quite a lot to take on as like a young 22 year old, 23 year old, you know, going, I think, and I think most people must struggle a lot through this in poker, you know, trying to, trying to seek the acceptance of their peers is probably what every poker player goes through from like. 18 years old to 25 years old, you know? And I think a lot of the guys who are like older school and successful, they don't really seek out that validation. Like, I don't think Ivy cares what other people think of him, you know, he just does his thing. 
you know. Um, I think Doll Brunson's not sitting in Bobby's room thinking, ah, oh, I, I, I wouldn't have sources thinking I'm playing this limit street wrong. You know, he just plays this thing and he's happy with how he plays, you know. So I think uh, I think that's I think that's a really important important thing what it teaches you. Um, yeah. Is this a is this a common thing, Adam? Is it common to seek validation from others? Is that the question, Brené? Yes. Do you see this a lot in, uh, in 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 players that you coach that they struggle with these kind of problems? Yeah, I do. I think, especially as Pad said, like the younger people, when you're 18 to mid 20s, you've got that kind of wanting to prove other people right or prove prove yourself right to other people. And very often, you're judging yourself based on what other people are thinking about you. And as a poker player, it's pretty risky to uh, say you're not going to get a job and you're going to play poker professionally. It's a pretty ballsy thing to say. And people are watching you, and your friends and your family are kind of thinking, well, this is a bit of a crazy decision so subconsciously you're wanting to go i know what i'm doing i'm smart i'm clever i can make this work so yeah i think it's really common until you have an initial amount of success to do it to validate yourself to other people's eyes and hopefully like if you have success you get, you get to a point where you realize wait a second like i don't need to do it for the people i can start doing it for myself and then you start transitioning your motives more to more six singular things in terms of achievements for yourself uh helping other people out or just basically uh, you get past that kind of validation but yeah i think it's almost almost inevitable that that's going to be the case just based on the fact that you're going for something that's very risky and that other people are doubting you from the the outside it almost goes without saying that you're you're going to want to prove to certain people that you're good at what you do um and also uh, as a poker player you put so much into it like it's not like a half-hearted pursuit like you put your life into it a lot of players are they give their the whole the time and energy to the game so when you do put your identity into your pursuit of course you want it to work and of course you want people to uh to validate you and say yeah you're doing good at this this occupation so uh yeah, i think it's definitely common especially in the the younger generations and then yeah as you, as uh pads was saying i think we get to uh the mature poker players especially the Tyler brunson's the ultimate example where you do it for your own reasons you do you're playing poker for your own achievements you don't care what other people are saying and yes yeah, so it's, it's a good place to get to it's actually, it's actually quite funny. I'm not sure if Renny knows. Adam and I, uh, we used to we used to race, run the same races when we were younger, uh, like long distance running races. Uh, and uh, I, I guess Adam was the year above me. Like I guess you were like the the one year above me. But we'd be basically I would race first, and then Adam would race afterwards. We didn't realize this till like I guess a couple of years ago. Um, but in running, I would do long distance running, and I'm like the if you looked at me, you'd like especially at that age you would think i was the least likely long distance runner ever like to look at i would turn up at these races uh like big champion big championships and i would be the smallest person by like seven inches uh and i would be like the stockiest person by far uh i joined a running club and uh the my coach nickname used to call me uh a fat santa <laughs> he used to call me fat santa and it used to it used to drive me so mad, uh, and I used to, I used, to, I did so well. I used, to, I used to win all the races. I was like the not national. I was a city champion. I won the counties. I went into counties, uh, and it, the whole reason why I ran, I hated running. I absolutely hated it. But I only ran because I wanted to prove this guy wrong. I wanted to prove the other people in the race. I used to turn up the race. People used to laugh. Like I would turn up on, on like the line, and these guys would laugh. Like, what, what is he doing here? Like, he, he, you always have the person who's like last in the race. They're like, oh, this guy must be terrible. But I would win the race, but I wouldn't win it for me. I'd win it against them because I was so tilted and angry. Like, not like there wasn't validation. 
And then I would show up to like the meets where Adam would know there's like, it's very clicky. You have the clicks, you know, like the good runners, like a Gateshead, are you a Gateshead, Harrier? Yep. Like Gateshead yep. Harriers was actually very clicky. Like uh, you had the people who were like, they were like slightly better than the other clubs or whatever. And at first they used to kind of laugh at me a little bit when I showed up, but then eventually they would like try to get me into their clicks as well. And I used to hate that. And then I quit, once I got accepted into the click, I quit straight away. And I just wished in poker, I'd realized that, you know, like look back on that and realized, okay, why am I, why am I doing what am I doing? I, I was chasing the validation the same way as I was chasing the validation from running, you know, which I, I was hating live poker. And I was hating running. It was exactly the same thing, just replicating through my life. Uh, and it's just a bit sad that when you're in your twenties, you don't really look back and try to find lessons from your younger self. Even then, I think most people think of hindsight being when you're like 50 or 60 looking back now, but really, I think if you're 21, 22, listen to the podcast, maybe try to find some hindsight from literally when you're like 16, 17, 18, there's a lot to learn from, from those years, you know? Of yeah. Okay. yeah, I think it's if you don't learn the lessons, like you said, you'll repeat the same mistakes, you'll seek validation and another million things. And then hopefully, like if like you have with poker, you'll find something that almost gives you that validation, that final seal of approval. And then you just drop it and go, right, fuck that. I'm done with the whole approval thing. It's actually funny because I remember you by your surname, because in in um in running you always had the results sheet as the, the initial and the surname. So you still say Leonard in your in your in your name, I think you, because because you did a lot of football, you would, didn't like do the whole circuit. You just show up for certain races, and, like win. And I'd be all oh, this guy's just coming to nowhere. Uh, but yeah, I remember your I think the year below me. But there were certain age groups where you'd over overlap. So for like say under 15s, I could be a top year under 15, and you could be a bottom year. So we'd race each other for the same for the same year. I sucked at cross country. I think you actually a really good cross country runner. Um, and you showed me some results a while ago where you were really high up in some of the really good cross country. So. Yeah, you are a talented uh, cross country for sure. And yeah, I think it's interesting to look and go, right, as a young 13, 14 year old, we were seeking validation. And it was from peer groups, it was from friends, it was from family. And it's just this like kind of kid who wants to be accepted. I want to be good at what I'm doing. Just give me a badge, give me a, a sticker, a medal or something to tell me I'm good. And then you go into your adult life and you still keep doing the same things. And you, you start trying to get university degrees so your parents feel proud of you. And then you start trying to make some money so your friends think you're cool. And then you start tr trying to go to Vegas so you, again, you, you've got this kind of image that people can think you're a, a good person. So yeah, I think it's one of those things where when you're young, it's easy to fall into that trend. And I'm sure some people get to their 30s and 40s and they're still kind of living that model. But yeah, it's really good to look back and go, wait a second, like what approval was, was I looking for? Why did I need that? Why did I feel like I wasn't enough of myself to uh, to validate myself? And why did I need other people to give me a kind of badge or a sticker or something to make me feel good? But yeah, I think for you, obviously you've come on a full journey. It uh, feels like almost like poker was your your real growing up where you really found out who you wanted to be, what you're passionate about. And you've got a point now where I'm guessing you don't give a, a fuck what anyone really thinks about you because you're very self-assured, you're very confident. And from the outside looking in, it's hard to uh, even imagine that you were somebody who struggled with this because you're a very confident, outgoing person from the from the outside. And it's yeah, it's, it's really reassuring for people who know you, like the current version of you, to know that you struggled with that and you had to uh, go through phases and evolutions on your journey to actually get to a point where now you feel comfortable. Now you can just do your own thing. You can have your own strategies. You don't need to uh, have other side, outside influences um, influence you at all. So uh, for you right now, how does it feel in terms of the things that motivate you? So uh, when you are young and you are doing things for almost like approval of other people, in one way that kind of drives you. It's almost like a, a easy fuel source. It's like, I need to do this because I need to get approval. Now you're at a point where you kind of don't need to do anything. Like you're 
you've approved to yourself, you proved yourself you can do this, you've been at the poker game so long, you've achieved everything. What is it now at this stage of your career that still drives you, that still gets you to go, you know what, I do want to push myself to be the best. What is it now that's different compared to what it was back in the, the old days? So I have two goals, basically. Um, the first goal, the first thing I really like is playing series. So I like to play 40, 50, 60 days at a time. And uh, I can't, I have to do all in. I, I can't just like go play, okay, I'm going to play three days a week or four. I have to be like, I'm all in for this series. I really, really love that. So I look forward to it for like scoop, W Coop and winter series. It's like three times in the year. I know I'm going to play 50, well, let's say 40 plus days in a row if it's available, if the series lasts as long. With coronavirus, it lasted for like a year at one point. They just had series the whole time. But I, I basically, I really like that period of time. Uh, I do bets against uh, the, the two best poker players in the world are like tournaments are Lena and C. Darwin. They're very famous. They've been around for literally ever. Uh, I bet against them every series. We're good friends. It's like, it's like rivalry, but in a fun way. So I always choose a partner, a different partner every series, and we do a two versus two bet. And for the 60 days or 30 days, whatever it is, whoever has the best results after these days wins like a big side bet. We usually bet like 100K or 50K or whatever it is, uh, like combined. And um, I really look forward to that. It's like a challenge. I'm like competing against the best. You know, It's not like I'm trying to play poker to get money off the fish or the whales, where the money's come from. I, I want to put my money up against the best players' money and try to compete and try to beat them. And it's not just about my strategy against their strategy. It's like who has the best mental strength over 40 days, who has the best, who's going to have the best warm-ups, who's going to have the best cool-downs. It will all come together to who wins that bet and a lot of luck, of course, as well. Uh, I really love, I really, really love doing these series. So that's like a, to me, I would do these series if there's no money. So it's not like what motivates me to have a job or whatever. This is like, if I had to pay to do this, like 50K, which I do some series, um, if I had to pay to do this, I would do it. You know, like I would, uh, I would do, I would, I would happily pay the admission fee. You know, some people like to go to nightclubs. People, some people like to go to, you know, the Maldives and spend 20 K, whatever it is. I would happily pay that money to experience this two months. Like it's, it's more fun for me than going to like a theme park or whatever. Uh, I love that. So, um, the whole, like me now being different places, like perfecting my strategy to come up against them. It's almost like you're going to battle or going to war. You don't just turn up for battle. You prepare, you do all this stuff, you know, you talk to your, you talk to your people, they talk to their people, you know, they think, oh, well, what's he going to be doing? You think, what, what are they going to be doing? You know, um, for me, that's just like so fun. So I don't need to motivate myself because I find it fun. I find that I don't need to, you know, like I'm lucky. I always say this, like, let's say I liked playing FIFA instead of poker. Like you probably don't make much money playing FIFA. You know, you probably have to have a job. I'm just so lucky that poker somehow is what I love to do and it pays you like it's just it's almost crazy you know like I don't know yeah so it sounds like you always want to challenge yourself against the best put yourself in situations where you need to come with a strategy and approach to uh yeah stay on top and yeah I love that that's the just the raw motive like it doesn't need like you don't need psyched up you do this for free you do this just um, out of enjoyment purely so uh, other players, like some people, they listen to this and going, wow, I wish I had that. But for me, poker is a bit of a grind. Like I want to get, be able to have a successful career. But I mean, for me, poker is hard work and I've got to put hours in. What would you say to those people who are trying to uh, get to your position? They're trying to get to the top, but they're almost in an unfair advantage because you're doing it for fun and they're trying to get themselves to, uh, to willpower the way to, uh, to an outcome. So what would you say to some, some players who are maybe uh, struggling with motivation to uh, pursue their goals at poker? What would you say to them in terms of maybe finding some passion and spot that you've got? 
I would say quit. I mean, it's probably not the answer you want, but I would say quit. Like, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not this guy at all. Like, I, I hate like, like meditation. I, I hate all like spiritual stuff. Like, I don't hate it. It's just it's not for me. Um, that's not me at all. But I, I don't, I don't like so much like motivational stuff, whatever. But I, I really do think you have one life, and there's so much different things you can do in life uh, to make you happy, to feel really fulfilled. Um, <clears throat> I know the feeling of fulfillment because I love it so much. So like, if you don't feel that feeling, you sometimes don't know what the mm. feeling, how good the feeling is. And like, again, I don't like to be that guy, but I promise you the feeling of feeling so fulfilled is such a good feeling. There's no feeling like it ever, like anything, nothing compares. So if you don't feel it, you have to get out and find, you have to find it somewhere. It may be, it's in some, something else, you know, you have to find the passion. And if you don't, if you spend your time doing poker and you spend your time close away from potentially doing other things, then it's very likely you won't find that. And then you'll, you'll never feel that fulfillment, you know? So yeah, you have to, you have to, you have to get out to give yourself a chance to, to find fulfillment because that's what life, again, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be that guy, but life is about finding that fulfillment that, and the end goal of life is finding what makes you happy. Right. It's not about plodding along or grinding along. You have to find your happiness. So if, if you're spending all your time in something, which doesn't give you that full, full fulfillment where you feel I've completed life, where I succeed and I'm succeeding. This is what I set out to do. You have to quit. You know, you have to do something else because it's just holding you back. And again, like I really, I, re I don't like these motivational speeches or that kind of, I, I don't so much like self-development books or whatever, but I think it's not that big of a statement to say that you need to find fulfillment, you know? Yeah. 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 I think sometimes people fall into the trap of feeling they need to get somewhere first. It's like, I need to uh, have some money in my bankroll. I need to tick off this achievement and then I'll find the thing that makes me happy and fulfilled. And very often, like you said, it's like, just get out now and like find that thing that makes you fulfilled. And on the way, you'll get that success most likely, unless you say you play FIFA, but even then you can probably make money playing you FIFA can. these days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think it's really good advice to, um, don't try and force it. I think that's another thing as well. Sometimes I think people are trying to almost like put like a, a round pe peg into a square hole and they're trying to make themselves feel motivated. If you haven't found that thing that makes you feel alive, keep looking, keep looking. Life's, life's a long game. Like we've, we've got many opportunities to find that thing we're passionate about. And yeah, I think one of the, the good role models you've been in the poker world is you love poker. Like there's no fake in it. Like anyone watch your Instagram stories on a Sunday, I, I watch them all and you're just so enthusiastic about playing poker like all these years later and you can't help it. So I think other people, if poker's not your thing, who cares? Find something else where it is your thing to put all your energy into. Once you find it, then all of a sudden you don't need to worry about motivation because you've got it. You've got that drive and you want to get better. So uh, yeah, really, really good advice there. Uh, Ren, have you got any uh, pardon questions or any questions around reflecting, looking back on, the, on the, his career? Uh, I think I got uh, one last question uh, for Patrick. Um, you, I also saw on, on browsing through your Instagram before this uh, conversation that you were indeed leading up to the big final battle in May and then afterwards Vegas. And you mentioned the side backs against Lena and Darwin. What are some things that you feel like are still current leaks that you have that you still need to improve upon in order to really crush it this summer? Interesting. Yeah. I mean... I think uh, strategies forever evolving. Like I know that 
I have like a base of my strategy, but I know that there's so much stuff I just don't know. You know, like I'm not precise. I like um, European big influence. Like I, I go back to him a lot, but he is a big advocate of being precise, being really precise about things, not being things like so half-assed, like not thinking, oh yeah, this is like my, like let's say button opens and you're thinking, okay, well, what's my strategy in the big blind? It's like, which hands do I shove 20 big blinds deep? It's not like, oh yeah, I'm going to shove some ASX. I'm going to shove some pseudo connectors. I'm going to shove some uh, like low pocket pairs, whatever. Like the way that European approaches it is like, okay, I'm going to shove deuces to sixes. I'm going to shove ace deuce to ace six because of the block, because of some blocker effects. I'm going to shove 10 eight suited, 10 seven suited. I'm going to call 10 nine suited, queen 10 suited because they have better uh, EV in the call node, whatever. Like that, that's two different ways to, to have things. It's like one, okay, this is my overall strategy. And then two, is, um, this is my precise strategy. So what this is what over the last six months or so of playing, like I played 60 days around Christmas, I had an overall strategy, right? Um, and then now it's about making it as precise as possible. So it's about, okay, like I, I'm overbetting on king high boards, I'm overbetting the turn. Like that's my strategy, okay? Like, but then which exact hands are falling there? Which king X am I putting into my check node because of blocker effects to maybe uh, have more EV or to protect my range to have some calls versus bet, check, bet, etc. stuff like that. So I haven't like really precise. I feel like right now I know my game plan pretty well. I know when I bet big, I know when I bet small, I know which hand, I know my overall strategy of calling the button. I know my overall strategy of rejamming the big blind. Uh, of course, I know selective combos. Of course, I know which, I know I see the aces, right? I know I see bet top set. I know, well, sometimes, uh, but uh, but it's all about having that as making it as precise as possible. So every series you turn up to, your strategy doesn't change of going, okay, you know, I play this strategy now. Okay, well, I play this other strategy in the next series. Between Scoop and WCoop, you play basically the same strategy, but the your ROI or your EV is going to come from that strategy being as precise as possible, every single combo being as precise as possible. And that's why I have like 5,000 hand issues to go through now, through all of these things, which are kind of borderline hands. Okay. Is this one going in there or is it going in here? Is this one, is there more EV in checking this one back or is there more EV in overbetting this one? Whatever it may be. So just being precise, but I will never know every single combo in every single node, every single time. That's why I spent two to three months now being as precise as possible, but also being acceptant and forgiving to yourself that I'm not, I'm not going to know. I'm going to show up in scoop and I'm going to face some spots and I'm not going to know if king nine's an overbet or if king ten's the line for an overbet sometimes. Being ex at times, I felt like, not like a fraud. What's the word? Uh, what's the word where you feel like you're not as good? Uh, imposter syndrome, awesome, you know? Yeah. So much in the middle of my career, I felt I had imposter syndrome because I didn't know what to do with a certain combo. I said, oh, well, Graffy would know. Oh, a European would know. Well, Adama would know. But they're improving in poker every day too, so they don't, they don't know everything either, right? But I felt this imposter syndrome a lot through my career that I didn't know what to do with exact combos in certain spots, right? But now I'm a very accepting. I'm very forgiven. I'm like, okay, I don't know. It's fine. I'll know next time, or I'll save this, or I'll be more precise next time. I may not know the exact stuff, but I'll be more precise every time I play. And I think that's just the... That's what I can improve on. I think that's what everyone can improve on. I think if people try to change, you know, strategy from going A to Z, A to Z, different strategy, they're going to fail because they're going to be poor versions of other people rather than being the better version of yourself. And to be a better version of yourself, you keep your strategy, you keep what works, you just make it as precise as possible. Um, so hopefully that's the same answer for everybody. Hopefully everyone would answer it the same way, but maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe they wouldn't. Yeah, and I think there's also a very big difference between going into a series 
expecting you to be precise or striving towards be precise, right? That's a very big difference. I think expecting and then facing reality that exactly what you said. Yeah, you don't know if the threshold, the value threshold was king nine over bet or king 10 over bet. You, it's, it's hard to know, right? Exactly in all notes. But if you, if you at least strive and are forgiving with yourself when, you, when you're off one combo, when you're off a combo here, I think that's, uh, that's the way to, uh, yeah, to see, stay mentally sane right, in this game. For sure, for sure, for sure. And, and also people may, some people's goals may be to be as precise, but maybe their goal needs to be if there's 40 days of a series, that if last series they played 22 days out of 40, how can they now play 28 days in the next series, you know? Because that's where the difference in money they make in the series is going to be. It doesn't matter if it's King 9 or King 10 necessarily. If their goal is that they're physically unfit enough, if their goal is they're mentally not well enough, if their goal is that uh, whatever it may be, you know, uh, allows them to only play 22 instead of 28, that's what they should focus on between the series, you know? Right now, I, I have not taken a day off in the series in like, I think four years, but for the first four years of my career, I took lots of days off. You know, I couldn't mentally handle the swings. I couldn't physically handle the swings. I wasn't prepared for it. I didn't have good warm-ups. I didn't have good cooldowns. I didn't have my sleep schedule perfected to a way which works for me. You know, I didn't have like my food done like I like I have it now or diff whatever it may be. So for most people, their goal sh shouldn't necessarily be strategic precision. It should be um you know mental mental well-being or physical well-being to strive towards playing as many days as possible for that strategy their strategy is probably fine if they're a winning player you need to play more days you know until you get to the goal like it took like i play 100 days i play 40 out of 40 days but i've been playing for 15 years you know so it's like i didn't just do this the first year the first time i played a scoop i played two days out of 40 probably it's been a gradual process, you know. But when you now go to a series, you mentioned, uh, I heard you quickly mentioning like foot prepping, warming up and cooling down, and, you know, because it's a long grind. Could you, what are some, what are some things that you do when a series comes along in order for you to perform all these 40 days? So these 40 days are written off from everything else. So the whole thing is just for this. So I will sleep, uh, I will sleep late because I know that, for peak performance, I need to be performing well late in the night, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., because this is when final table is going to be around. So I need to be as awake as possible at 2 a.m. to play. So this means I need to be ready to sleep at like 6 a.m. because I need to be, you know, my peak time will be like four hours before I sleep or whatever. Like I need to be really peak then because I'm going to be making decisions for lots of money. At, at 5 p.m. in the afternoon, the stakes I play are going to be, you know, $100, $200, $300. The stakes I play at 4 a.m. are going to be, you know, for houses, for cars, for careers, for my life, you know, for, for the rest of life, for my retirement, whatever it may be. So I need to, that's the main thing. Like I need to be able to perform between midnight and 4 a.m., which I think most people start getting tired and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so that's number one. Number two is I make things, uh, I make things as consistent as possible. So I only eat the same food for every day. Every day feels like it's just the next day. I'm doing the same today as what I did yesterday. So it doesn't matter what the food is. It doesn't even matter if it's super healthy or whatever, but I'll eat the same food for all these days. I'll have the same coffees at the same times so that my mood's not fluctuating throughout the time. So I will always make sure I have a coffee at say 3 p.m. and then 4 p.m., something like that. I won't one day randomly have a coffee at 1 p.m. and then 7 p.m. I try to stay as consistent as possible so that just... Today feels like it's going to be the same as yesterday. I'm not like changing anything. Uh, I make sure that I sleep or I try to sleep for eight hours. Exactly. Not too much, not too little. I try to make sure I always cool down for the exact amount of time. So for like 90 minutes, um, I just try to be, I don't try to change day to day. It's just, okay, I'm going to do the same as yesterday. 
I'm going to do the same tomorrow. So I do today. It's just, it doesn't matter what it is. You just need to make your own routine. You know, I'm not saying copy my routine. I'm just saying find your routine to make consistency and then roll out that consistency, you know? And I think taking days off kills the consistency. So let's say you're consistent Monday to Thursday, then you take off Fridays, your day off. Usually in your day off, you're going to be eating some different food. You're going to be uh, sleeping differently. Maybe you have alcohol. Maybe you do whatever. Maybe you work out at a different time of the day. Could be whatever. Sometimes your days off kill you. Sometimes if you feel like you need a day off, it's better to just have a slightly lighter session. Don't play 20 tables, play four, play six tables, chill a little bit. Uh, just realize I'm going to have a softer day today. Don't take the day off necessarily because you just completely kill the consistency that you've made from the Monday to Thursday, you know, because you're now you're, you're telling your body, okay, we do, it's time to do something different. And then you come back to Saturday. You're like, okay, well, the body is like saying, oh, well, are we doing this? Are we doing that? The body doesn't know. The mind doesn't know, you know? Um, so, yeah. And like a, a week before the series start, is that like a week where you take off or are you x-raying the lab? Uh, the week before is all about getting the sleep schedule, the I basically will plan the the schedule. We'll start the week before. I can't just jump in the first day and be like, okay, well, this is how we're doing it, body. This is how we're doing mm -hmm. it, mind, you know? Like, you start climatizing towards that time. So, like, I don't just fly from, a, from like, a live stop and then start playing online, where in live poker you play 12 p.m. till 8 p.m. I can't just do that and turn up on a Sunday and be like, okay, well, let, let's perform, you know? Like, it's, not, it's not really going to work. Um, so the, the time before is not necessarily about studying or strategy because it's... Uh, I've already done that for like the two months or three months before, but it might be about getting used to playing lots of tables again, because now I have my laptop, I'm playing just six tables on a Sunday or whatever, eight tables. I need to get used to being in front of a huge screen with 30 tables. So maybe I need to play a week, not to make money, not to do anything, but just getting used to my eyes, getting used to the screen, to being used to the office. Maybe I need to make sure the internet's okay. Maybe make sure there's no stress, you know, find some, whatever it may be, you know, like, fix all the problems before the before it is a problem essentially all right thank you for sharing man uh, that's a great approach in my opinion it sounds uh sounds very good adam do you have any final questions before we let uh we let patrick go no i'd like to be respectful of pad's time i know you're deep in the lab right now and you're studying like crazy so uh, i appreciate you taking some time out of your busy day to speak with us and uh, yeah we've learned a lot together me and renee will have a bit of a summary after this and yeah i'm sure our audience is going to love it so thanks for your time Perfect. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Keep doing these podcasts. They're, they're great. I, I, I will keep uh, watching your podcast and learning. You've had some really good guests on so far. So, uh, yeah, taking some wisdom from those guys, hopefully. All right. Thank you very much. Keep it up. All right. That was the conversation we had with Patrick. I'm going to repeat myself here like I usually do at the end of these podcasts. But, man, 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 what a bunch of wisdom was that, Adam. Yeah, such a great episode. Hopefully you guys watching got a lot of takeaways. One of my biggest things I like about Pads is his passion for poker. And he's been in the game for so long, like 14, 15 years. He's still at the very top of his game. He's still hungrier than ever. He's still got so much more to give to the game. And it just, it just comes out and every time he speaks how much he just loves poker. Um, so yeah, I'm really impressed by his longevity and his passion for the game. One of the main things I got from this conversation was when Pads was talking about how when he was younger, he talked about his running career, but also football and poker, where he was basically doing things for approval. He wanted people to uh, to like him, to uh, think he was making good choices, to think he was to validate him. 
And it wasn't until he had a lot of success in poker that he finally got to a stage where that wasn't the case anymore. And then he even talked about, even when he was crushing all the online games, he still had this almost chip on his shoulder that he really wanted to go to the live scenes just to prove to the people that he could do it. And it wasn't until he had that live success at the end that he finally realized, wait a minute, what am I doing? This isn't making me happy. It isn't making me fulfilled. So yeah, I think it's a really good like kind of lesson to learn. Always like reconnect with yourself and do, try to do things for yourself and not for other people. When you're young, you're coming up and you're starting out and stuff. It is hard. Like you do want to impress people. You do want to look good to your friends. Your family's opinion of you does matter. But you do want to get to the point where you're doing things that make you happy, not other people. So uh, Paz is a great example of that. He's got a point now where I don't really think he cares whatsoever what people think of him. But he talked about a lot of his career. He was doing things to uh, validate himself in other people's eyes. And it wasn't until he had a lot of success that he was able to, to get past that. So that was one of the main takeaways, which I think a lot of people can relate to and also uh, learn some lessons from. And then I really liked what Paz was saying at the very end about when he's preparing for this series coming up how methodical he is and he's talking about basically getting his body clock and his mind prepared for what's coming next and he's very much approaching like an athlete approaches the olympics like it's having the same wake up routine it's the same sleep routine it's mentally rehearsing how things are going to feel it's having the same meals at the same time so your body knows what to do it's rehearsing the actions you're going to take so in terms of playing more tables so i really liked all those performance and kind of mindsets um strategies he was using in order to optimize his performance ready for the next uh, series so uh, really high level stuff there at the end and yeah anyone who wants to perform at a high level having consistent routines that allow you to uh, perform well is so so key so if you're somebody who uh, has random schedule you wake up all over the place if you want to perform well for a block of time whether it's two weeks a month or whatever it's really good to dial in everything around that performance and get as um, kind of consistent and regimented with a routine as possible so yeah loads of lessons from pads today such a great guest to have on what were some of the things that you learned there Rene? yeah it's what you said like the overall professionalism that he has towards being a poker player i think that's something that really stuck out obviously he has a lot of experience right and this you know it didn't come it, it, it didn't come at the start after I think he talked about 15 years of experience. He became more professional and professional every time. Uh, I really liked what he talked about in terms of trying to become the best version of yourself. You want to kind of go inwards and be like, okay, what made me? I think he gave the example, why was I good enough to move out of my home game into the big casino, for example? What is that strength and how can I build my strategy around that? Obviously, you should still try to get in information from other players, right? That's something that he also mentioned. If someone else puts you in a tough spot, like, hey, oh, wow, pretty cool. He puts me in this tough spot. What can I learn from this? And try to add that to your game. But he, he said repeatedly to not try to become, for example, a bad version of Pots. You know, try to look at how he plays and try to copy him. No, you can learn from him, but stay true to your own strength. I think that, that was very important uh, uh, for me, probably... The main takeaway of this conversation uh, he also talked about how in the end the most important thing is yeah who won the most money and people often go towards improving their strategy where he said yeah maybe you should try to see if you can increase your volume by learning how to play more tables for example that's also a way and often a quicker way to increase your overall winnings and thus become a better poker player his definition of being a good poker player in the end was clearly just net result right either be 100 roi net one in the end that's going to be the best poker player he also gave some good advice of why you know in his opinion his students failed uh, at bp if I remember being very aggressive in any format in poker just naturally works 
if you're playing too passive, yeah. Playing that's kind of playing not to lose instead of playing to win. Aggressive poker usually wins you money. So uh, that's also a very good takeaway. But yeah, I mean, we talked for so many hours. Uh, I love wisdom, hard to recap. I want to thank everyone again for tuning in to the Mechanics of Poker podcast. Uh, we really enjoyed uh, all the good comments we had so far on all the episodes. So thank you for that. And I'm looking forward to seeing you guys in the next episode. Now, if you learned something in this episode, we would much appreciate it if you like and subscribe. Leave a comment with your main takeaways. Give us a five-star rating and follow the pod. This way we can reach more players and help them reach their big and ambitious poker goals. And if you want us to help you get to those goals, go over to pokerambition.com to find out more.